Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Are you searching for the best in online black radio? Then go to BlackTalkRadioNetwork.com. Helping you filter through the noise. Real talk. Black talk. The internet is full of half-truths and all-out lies. We've all seen them, and many people on social media complaining about it. Here's your chance to show and prove. WorldAfropedia.com is a black-owned and operated encyclopedia. There are several thousand articles, but we need help. We can't uncover all the truth ourselves. So please, join us and become a writer, editor, or blogger for WorldAfropedia.com today. Every little bit counts. We owe it to the future generations to put the truth out there. Visit WorldAfropedia.com, the African-Centered Encyclopedia, a global database of African knowledge for the purpose of bringing about global African wisdom and understanding. WorldAfropedia.com If Quinn Chapel is a Chicago institution, so too is Robert Henry Lawrence, Jr., He served in the United States Air Force and became the first African-American astronaut. Unfortunately, he never made it into space. His wife, Barbara Cress Lawrence, recently shared his story with her sister, Lorna Cress Love, as part of the StoryCorps GRIO initiative. The project aims to capture the oral history of everyday African-Americans. She says Robert Lawrence faced many prejudices in his position. One incident she witnessed came with the initial reaction to his appointment and the local media's first phone calls. And the, the, the you know person on the phone said, uh, "Is this the Lawrence residence?" And I said, "Yes, it is." And he said, "There's a story in Chicago that Lawrence is a Negro, you know." <laughs> and I and he said, "Is that true?" And I said, "Well, the last time I checked, he was." <laughs> you know? And but it was just amazing that the you know people in the country would not have expected and could not believe that a Negro was going to be named as an astronaut. So then what happened? So Bob was flying as the instructor pilot to maintain his proficiency, which you had to fly at least four hours a month in a plane. And the afternoon of December the 8th, 1967, there was an accident. And uh, because the plane came down tail first, Bob's chute or Bob's seat I guess the charge didn't fully explode so that he hit the ground and his chest was crushed. There were hundreds of, you know, of condolences from citizens all across the country. But there were also several responses from other citizens. One in particular said that they were glad that nigger was killed. And that's the America that we lived in then and in many aspects still do. Now, the Air Force has uh, 
wings that they give for various accomplishments in terms of length of time or flights. The Air Force has a set of wings that are called astronaut wings, and those wings are for people who have gone 50 miles in the atmosphere. When the situation came up about Bob not being on the memorial wall, they said that he was not an astronaut. Well, he was killed in an accident that was simulating what became space space technology. And he was in a space program because it was the Man Orbiting Laboratory, which was the Air Force's space program. And there were a lot of very awful things said about why he didn't deserve to be on the wall. And finally, we had to go to uh, to my congressman at the time, uh, Bobby Rush, who had to write to the president, and we wrote to the, the man who was at that time the uh, president of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, who it turned out was uh, was a student at Bradley when Bob was the student was the student commander of the Air Force Wing. Finally, after all of that, they they decided and voted unanimously, although they had voted basically unanimously several times not to put him on the wall, to put him on the wall. And they did it in December the 8th, 1997, which was 30, 30 years after he had been killed. There's a school in Chicago that was renamed for him as a Robert, Major Robert H. Lawrence School for Mathematics and Science. And Ohio State University has has done a, a lecture it. hall, and Bradley University has an annual lecture uh, series that they started in the name and, uh, of, of Robert H. Lawrence. So several institutions that he had been involved with, and I think the, especially the school which was renamed because it was hoped that young children, especially young African-American children, because it is an African-American community, would think that, okay, here's a person who went to school in Chicago, went to grammar school and high schools in Chicago, and worked hard and accomplished these goals, and so that they could see that if you work hard and you have a dream, that you can do this too. Chicago resident Barbara Cress Lawrence talking with her sister, Lorna Cress Love. They spoke about Barbara's husband, Robert Henry Lawrence Jr., the first African-American astronaut. She shared this story as part of the StoryCorps Oral History Initiative, and for more information, you can visit our website at chicagopublicradio.org. Context of white supremacy. Gus T. Renegade in for another broadcast, hopefully to share constructive information on the system of white supremacy. Today's date, Tuesday, March 22nd, 2016. So I have been told. I think a lot of our listeners, uh, fortunately, uh, were able to take time out over this past weekend. Some were fortunate enough even to be in attendance, and others were able to uh, catch the live stream uh, of the memorial tribute to Dr. Francis Cress Welsing, author of the ISIS Papers, third generation physician, attempted counter racist scientist, and uh, just raved about what they saw for the folks who were in attendance or who were uh, catching it live, the live stream. I uh, just thought it was a fantastic event and uh, really did well in terms of, of paying the highest respects uh, to someone who devoted. Uh, most of her life, uh, 81 years on this planet, uh, to fighting against racism 
white supremacy. Uh, we thought it would be uh, fantastic uh, if we could get uh, her sister, who was just with us uh, on the program not that far back this year, uh, to get her back on the program. Uh, and just really emphasizing, I think, the entire family and our guest for today, Miss Lauren Cress Love, uh, just in my view, outstanding illustration of black self-respect and resilience. Uh, she was at the service this past Saturday, and I heard from many people that she just she gave such uh, words of encouragement and really admonishing, telling folks to to really get out and let our actions speak for the reverence that we have for Dr. Welsing instead of just a lot of kind words. Uh, but in my opinion, just incredible perseverance uh, dealing with the loss, not only of Dr. Francis Cress Welsing, uh, but her other sister that you heard uh, in the audio segment at the beginning of the program, uh, Barbara Cress Lawrence. Uh, she spoke about her when she was with us uh, earlier this year, and she transitioned uh, since the time that we spoke with her last. Uh, so just uh, to take a, a moment of silence uh, to just show our respect uh, for both of the losses, Dr. Francis Cress Welsing and Barbara Cress Lawrence. Context of white supremacy. Uh, joining us for the second time this year uh, to give some of her thoughts on what transpired this weekend and uh, just other views uh, that it would be great uh, to hear from. We had so many folks who were really appreciative and learned so much, uh, not just about Dr. Francis Cress Welsing, but the family that produced Dr. Welsing. Uh, it was just such a, a deep honor to have her with us before, and we are extremely grateful to have her with us again, uh, our guest this evening, uh, Miss Lauren Cress Love. Uh, Miss Love, you're with us? I am with you, and uh, thank you for those words of tribute uh, in the moment of silence. It's really deeply appreciated. Mm -hmm. We, uh, just as I said, appreciate you. It's, it's just been such a, a monumentally difficult time, and for you to take time out of your schedule to come back and, and speak with us again, um, we are, are truly grateful. Um, I guess, it, do you remember, because you were in that interview speaking with your sister, uh, Barbara Cress Lawrence, do you remember that? I think it's from 2007. Oh, yes, I certainly remember it because it was my idea that we do it. Uh, <clears throat> that particular interview was done at the DuSabo Museum in Chicago, which is the black museum. Uh, StoryCorps had a mobile unit uh, outside of the DuSable Museum, and uh, I had heard about it and suggested that Barbara and I go and do a recording. I think we did, because I think we did one on Me Too. But actually, uh, she had asked that that uh, interview not be publicized or uh, broadcast and StoryCorps did it anyway but I'm appreciative and glad that the information is out there so uh, since she is deceased uh, I guess that it kind of makes a difference you know in, in having the information broadcast but uh, I do remember it I think that uh, if I can just pitch StoryCorps, more African Americans need to, wherever they have a 
unit or an opportunity more African Americans should go and tell their stories so that it gets into the National Archives or the Library of Congress and our history is is told and denoted. So just a pitch for a story card. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, absolutely, and I'm, I'm glad I was able to hear that. Just because the, I mean, when we talk about racism, white supremacy, um, her talking about some of the uh, letters, and she did say that she got hundreds of, of condolences and, and people just wanting to send their thoughts and prayers. But uh, to have uh, racists, and I mean, that's putting it mildly, uh, the vileness for them to be sending uh, those type of of filthy and, and racist comments uh, about her deceased husband, Mr. Lawrence, after his death uh, and calling him a nigger and what have you. I mean, that reveals a lot, in my view, uh, about racism, white supremacy, and even uh, what she was talking about in terms of the resistance uh, to having him honored as an astronaut where they want to be technical. So, well, he never did an official uh, mission. Uh, do you have any comments on that? Well, what I would say, uh, and since that tape was done. We have um, received some additional information. Uh, since there is no such thing as coincidence, we ended up about three years ago, myself, my sister Frances, and my sister Barbara, we ended up at an event in Chicago for Margaret Burroughs, who was the woman who founded the DuSable Museum. And uh, it was just before, it was in October, just before Margaret's birthday, which would be, have been in November, and she was ill. So they gave this big event for her, and it was followed by a wonderful dinner. And we ended up uh, through a series of interesting machinations, but we ended up sitting at a table and were later joined by this man and, and, and a woman. And they sat down almost opposite Francis and Barbara. And, you know, they, they were guests also. Well, as it turned out, and this is the strangest, strangest uh, uh, episode, one of the strangest in our lives, he was the physician. He was an Air Force physician, and he was the physician who did the autopsy on my brother-in-law, Robert Lawrence. He was in the Air Force. He was at Edwards Air Force Base at the same time Barbara and Bob were there. And when Bob's uh, plane crashed, he was the person who did the, the autopsy. And he also had access to the black box. And on the black box, uh, you could hear... My brother, see, my brother-in-law was training another pilot. He was not a trainee. He was a trainer. And he was known in the, that, that, uh, that unit of the Air Force. He was an excellent pilot. He was a brilliant man. He had a PhD in nuclear chemistry. He was, uh, he was, Prior to joining the uh, the astronaut program, he had been assigned to train Germans uh, to fly American jets on a base that the Americans were turning over 
to the Germans in Germany. He was one of four trainers and, of course, the only African-American. One of the things that while he was training these Germans to fly these American jets, one of the things that he discovered or realized was that as he was training, they were training these uh, German speakers in English, but they were training them in English in the split seconds that it took for the person whose natural language was German to translate into English, it could make a, 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 a mistakes could be made. So because he was astute and spoke German, he began training them in German. And I think that, that uh, just, just that speaks to his intelligence, his, his understanding. He was a marvelous person. And I mean that not just because he was my brother-in-law, but a marvelous person. Now, on the black box, he's training this person. He's in the back seat, and the pilot, the trainee, is in the front seat. And he is heard on the black box telling this person to change your position, change your position, change your position. They were doing um, a series of of exercises where the play the pilot takes the plane way down and then he brings it back up and then he takes it down again and brings it back up and so he's telling the trainee to change his position change your position which obviously he did not do but the other thing that we were informed is that this pilot this trainee had no business being in that train that plane because he was not eligible uh, or qualified to be flying that plane. So we don't know what really happened. Wow. That is incredible. And I, I totally agree. As you said, uh, no coincidences. No coincidences. Uh, anytime, particularly with the loss of uh, black life. Mm-hmm. Um, I know our listeners... Oh, excuse me. Let me just share one other thing. Mm-hmm. There was one other... Uh, uh, African America in the African American in the space program prior to Bob, and his name is Ed Dwight, Edward Dwight. And Kennedy had said that he was going to put an African American in the space program, and Ed Dwight was in in the program. But it's my understanding that he hardly got any training. And the day after Kennedy was killed, he was sent to Germany and taken out of the program. So, uh, well, if we do understand it, uh, as Neely Fuller says, if we do uh, understand racism, white supremacy, what it is and how it works, then everything else we think we know will only confuse us if we don't understand it. Absolutely. Context of white supremacy, brilliance, uh, even connection there with your uh, brother-in-law, Mr. Robert Lawrence and Dr. Welsing. She went to Germany uh, after graduating to go uh, study the history of Nazi Germany and him learning German, uh, learning the language of German so he could help uh, with some of the training of these German pilots. Uh, Fascinating connection even there. And again, the brilliance uh, of the uh, Kress family. Um, I wanted to make sure for our listeners, uh, this past Friday was Dr. Francis Cress Welsing's uh, 81st birthday, uh, your 82nd birthday uh, coming up later this month, the end of this month. Um, 
the ceremony that they had this past uh, weekend at the Metropolitan AME Church in Washington, D.C., uh, the day after her birthday. Uh, fantastic event. They had. They will have uh, DVDs available uh, for folks to uh, purchase if you missed the service or if you just want to make sure that you have it uh, in your collection uh, to share with other folks. Um, can you, I guess, number one, can you talk about how it ended up? I think you said when we spoke this weekend, you said that that was one of the best decisions that you made in your life to switch and have the service at the Metropolitan AME Church. Right. Well, uh, we, you know, we had, as, as just shortly after Francis died, uh, a committee came together to help plan a, a memorial. It was really kind of spontaneous. People just came together, right? And so someone uh, made contact with Howard at the Crampton Auditorium and observed a uh, a date for for the memorial. Um, I, I wasn't consulted, but that wasn't a, a, a real problem. But I began to see Crampton because I, I lived in, in Washington for many, many years and, you know, I'm familiar with Howard and I kept having this experience of seeing Crampton as it's, it was okay, but it, there was just something about this picture that just kept coming to my mind that did not resonate with the kind of memorial that I felt that my sister should deserve but I was I would say hesitant to to you know try to move on because we already had a date but one of her patients one of Francis's patients who is a member of Metropolitan AME uh kind of really started bugging me in a way you know she came by the house to offer her condolences and she asked about where this ceremony would be and when I told her she said you know did you ever think of metropolitan and I said well no but you know it's already been arranged and then <laughs> she came by another day right with the same I, I really think that you ought to consider metropolitan uh, AME church and uh, you know I said well you know it's kind of already been arranged. Then she called me on the telephone and she said, you know, I've talked to the minister and he would be more than, more than happy to accommodate, you know, you. And uh, so by that time, uh, and then she reminded me that it was the church of Frederick Douglass and that many other African-American heroes had either spoken there from that pulpit or uh, or had 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 been buried from the church or funeralized at the church, and so I kind of began to say well let's let's just see what we can do. It was really by far the the best experience, uh, uh, best one of the best decisions that I've ever made because it was the church was is a wonderful church. It's a very old church. It's I think the oldest African American church in Washington, D C and it was the Church of Frederick Douglass. And 
many, many major African Americans have been at that pulpit. And so it was totally fitting that Francis be memorialized there at the church. And we're continuing to be and all his parishioners who worked so hard to make that uh, memorial uh, the success that it was. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, can you, uh, you, you spoke, there were uh, a number uh, of uh, speakers and people who came to pay their respects and, and offer tributes. Um, can you just kind of speak to some of the words that you shared? Thousands in attendance, I think you said. It was uh, over 2,000 people uh, in attendance uh, for the event this past Saturday. Uh, and you're just kind of encouraging uh, black people who say that Dr. Welsing and her teachings meant something to them, impacted their life, that more than just having nice words to say about her, that her appreciation should be reflected in us being active uh, in what we do based on her teachings and the work that she invested in black people? Well, you know, yes. What I have to say about that is not just about the teachings of Dr. Francis Crest Wilson, but about the teachings of many African-American uh, scholars and thinkers and writers who have been out here, uh, it's almost like uh, crying in the wilderness for us to pay attention and to understand what it is that they're trying to tell us and what it is they want us to know. And so that certainly uh, was part of, I guess, my message that You know, we we sit at the feet of, of of these brothers and sisters who have struggled uh, in their own in their own right to 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 think, to look at our condition, to attempt to figure out what some of the answers are. And we, you know, when you hear these people, you're really moved. Uh, you you feel good. You we raise our fists. Then we go home and then we sit down, and we don't do anything. And so, <laughs> my message uh, is, and will continue to be on behalf of my sister. I urge people to read the ISIS papers, not just to look at the ISIS papers, but to study to understand. What is that she was attempting to inform us about? What was it that she was really trying to say to us? That's the first thing. Then the next part of it is that once we kind of read it and begin to understand it, then what do we do? We have work to do because the words, the message is significant. So I say read, read the ISIS papers. Understand what Dr. Welsing was trying to tell us when she talked about racism, white supremacy, what it is and how it works. I think understand that uh, it will help us to to understand what our next moves are, but it will also keep us from being as frustrated as one can be when one encounters 
certain kinds of experiences and just gets mad, at least we know what it is. And if we know what it is, at least we and we can define it, then we can work against it, but we can also not allow ourselves to get headaches, backaches, other stress-related problems as because uh, we experience attitudes in in our workplace, in our community, wherever we are in America. So does that respond to, or am I responding to your question? Absolutely, absolutely. (laughs) I would encourage that. And that is one thing that I I have been uh, pleased to see. I think more people saying that they do. Uh, either want to make sure that they read the ISIS papers for the first time or go back and reread it, uh, as well as her different lectures and what have you to really uh, study and apply uh, what she said. And I know I've heard Mr. Fuller and, and other folks say that as well, that, you know, really uh, just applying what she said um, in in our daily activity. And, and I certainly would emphasize uh, black self-respect, uh, making sure that we reflect that in the way that we treat other black people and the way that we treat ourselves uh, at all times. I think that would definitely uh, be something Dr. Welsing uh, would want, uh, something she talked about frequently on this program. Um, right. Well, especially the way that we, we, if we have to first work on how we treat ourselves. Because if we don't treat ourselves well, if we don't love ourselves, then it's not possible to love anyone else. So the first thing that we need to be working on is really substantively loving self. And that is not easy. You know, that's not an easy um, thing to do. You don't just do it. You have to work on it. And But as we do work on it, as we develop a stronger sense of self, then we relate in a different way to each other. And we begin to really really, really be able to express love for other people, for, for, for each other. That then, once we get that movement and that energy going in our community, we will find that uh, things are quite different than if we don't do it. You know, words, words and actions and our energy, words have energy, carry energy. And so once we just start loving ourselves and sending that energy out into the community, then it's, uh, it's, it's magic, really. It just catches on. It just, uh, you know, I, I, like if I send some love out there into the community right now and say, you know, really, I love you, I love you, I love you, Somebody is going to be affected just by those words. They will feel better. So if we started doing that, like loving ourselves, we empower ourselves. And as we empower ourselves, we move in the correct way against racism, white supremacy. Your back straightens up. Your back straightens up. Your stomach comes in. We stop slouching. We walk differently. We feel differently context of white supremacy um, in the months uh, since Dr. Welsing's transition. I know when uh, we spoke before, you said that uh, some 
some of her students, people that had been, have been uh, at the Crest Welsing Institute uh, for decades now. Uh, some of them, mm-hmm. they've, you know, been allowed to, to study with her for such a long period of time. We just had Sabrina Johnson on the program a couple of weeks back. And you said that some of them, they have, you know, a deeper understanding of some of her theories just because they, they spent so much time uh, with Dr. Welsing and, and just studying and researching and learning from her. Uh, in this time and with the different memorial services and what have you and so many people uh, talking to you about your sister, uh, can you kind of share maybe one or even if it's one or two things that have really stood out that you've learned uh, either about your sister or her work over the past couple months? Well, one of the things that I have learned since I have been here because I lived in D.C. for over 20 years, but then... I moved back to Chicago to take care of our mother. And so in the 20 years, and actually a little more than 20 years that I have uh, been out of the city, the Institute itself has developed, uh, if it's about 30 years now, and I have been out of Chicago, out of D.C. for over 20 years. So I did not spend the time uh, at the Institute listening to my sister, as people who were her students did. You know, I just didn't do that. Now, we talked frequently, almost at least maybe a couple of times a week, generally. Uh, But our conversations were not necessarily Francis lecturing to me on racism, white supremacy, although she might be recommending a book or let's discuss, or we might discuss a particular uh, current event. But I was not spending time as a student. So when I came to D.C. following my sister's death and met people from the Institute, I realized that some people have, who have been studying with her are real students and uh, have really understood uh, at great depth the her theory and the application of her theory in terms of of their everyday life and their analysis and understanding of current events from the point of view of uh, the. Uh, uh, ISIS papers or the Crest theory in terms of color confrontation. So I have great admiration for many of the people who have over the years been a part of the uh, Crest Welsing Institute and, uh, you know, and who have just studied with her over, over this period of time. Mm-hmm. Wow. Again, context of white supremacy, our guest, uh, Miss Lauren Cress Love. Um, when we spoke over the weekend, and you yourself, not just Dr. Welsing, you and, and your entire family uh, have devoted so much time and energy uh, to working against racism, white supremacy. And I thought it was so significant. You were telling us about you went for a job just talking about how racism, white supremacy uh, impacts us and can have such a long-lasting and traumatic impact on, mm-hmm. on us and the way that we think about ourselves. Can you kind of share with our listeners, you, you had an incident where you were applying for a job and they let you know that they, they did not hire coloreds. Right. Well, I mean, and this this is a long time ago. 
as as I as and as you noted, my my eighty second birthday will be on the thirty first of March, and so this was uh, quite a number of years ago. This nineteen around nineteen fifty five, and I was uh, had had uh, taken a year out of college, and I was looking for work, and I went to several agencies. This is in downtown Chicago, you know, and applied. I had about two and a half years of college. And back in 1955, two and a half years of college was almost equivalent to a master's degree today. But, uh, and so I was making application to these, at these various agencies. Of course, I never heard from them again, but then in, in, in one agency, uh, this woman said, well, oh, yes, well, you're very well qualified, but we don't hire colored. And I was, I had never had such an experience. I had never been told that or denied something, at least to my face, uh, uh, you know, been denied because of the color of my skin. I was, I was, I was just shocked and I was broken. Um, I can still experience the the pain that I felt. And I was a, a relatively young person, and although we knew about what we called back in those days segregation, if you grew up in an African-American community, and back in those days we were still Negroes, but if you grew up in a Negro community, you did not necessarily encounter uh, everyday white uh, hatred because the community was entirely black, and maybe we went to schools, all of our teachers were black. So uh, that encounter was really uh, jarring. It was mm, insulting. It was humiliating, and I still have vestiges of it for many, many, many years. I was never able to really uh, apply for a job. I would either have to get employment through friends or other ways, but I was never able to go into, let's say, an agency where I was not known to to uh, seek employment, and sometimes, you know, that meant that I had been really almost starving to death, uh, literally, but I just could not do it, and so I think that that's not an unusual experience. Many African Americans have had similar experiences that have then stopped them in, in their tracks, you know, you stopped in your tracks, you're moving forward, and then you have an experience of racism, white supremacy, and you're stopped, uh, you're, you're discouraged. You don't want to be made to feel bad again, because I was standing on the corner of State and Randolph in Chicago with tears coming down my cheeks, and I was saying, well, what can I do? I, I, I can't do anything about my color. What am I supposed to do? And that was, of course, before we had moved in terms of our thinking and, uh, you know, years later we're, we're more informed 
But back in the 50s, there were hardly any civil rights organizations really going yet back in around 55. There were just a few um, programs that were moving against what we now call racism, white supremacy. Uh, Congress of Racial Equality Corps had a small group of people around that time who were demonstrating in some areas in Chicago. But basically, uh, this was before the great push and movement of the 60s into the 70s when when we began to not just, well, let's say when we began to identify ourselves differently and begin to see ourselves differently. And uh, I guess that... Um, as a result of that, I, and I never thought about it, never hooked it to that earlier experience in around 55, but in 1957, I started um, thinking about hair and had a big argument with a person in my church who thought that Margaret Burroughs, who was the founder of the DuSable Museum and the first woman, African-American woman in Chicago to stop straightening her hair, uh, and it wasn't styled. Back in the day, Margaret was the only person doing it, and, and uh, it wasn't styled well. It wasn't looking great. But uh, a person complained to me that Margaret should be ashamed of her hair and the way her hair looked. And I said to her, this is 57, I said, you know, there's something wrong with us that we're afraid of the quality of our hair, that we've been made, made to be ashamed of the quality of our hair. I said, there's something wrong with that. And I said, I probably would never be able to do it, but I wish that I would have the courage to do it. So it took me uh, from 1957 to 1964 trying to read and trying to understand more about our us as a people uh, before I was able to realize that I could stop straightening my hair. And so I did that when I went south and worked in the civil rights movement. Mm -hmm. Wow. I just I know for our listeners uh, and I hope it's in the archives. I was telling folks this past weekend that I tried any time that I spoke with Dr. Welsing off the air. If she had a great anecdote or lesson, I tried to make sure we got those out uh, on the program on her next visit. But I know she told me that that just based on her year, decades of working with black patients, your experience uh, and being traumatized and not getting a job because of white supremacy. Uh, and how it affected your employment seeking uh, for mm -hmm. the rest of your life, it seems. She has seen that pattern, and she said that that's her conclusion when they talk about black unemployment numbers, that yes, you know, racists, they do things to keep us out of jobs and what have you, but she said that she thinks that a lot of black people have just become discouraged because they try to go out, they try to get a job, they try to do the best that they can to advance in their career, and they run up against so many unnecessary racist obstacles that they just get discouraged and just totally give up and just say, forget it. I'm going to, you know, check out and, and do whatever. If that means, you know, I'm, I'm destitute and I don't have anything or if I'm on drugs or however that manifests, she said she has concluded and she was pretty uh, vehement with this conclusion based on what she'd seen with her patients. This is happening on a widespread scale uh, under the system of racism, the exact experience that you had more than 50 years ago at this point. Mm -hmm. Well, uh, we can expect, 
an acceleration of this kind of activity in this country for many reasons. Under the guise of a word called gentrification, where we are being forced out of urban centers and therefore we're losing jobs, the homeless population is increasing. No one wants to say why it's increasing, but black people are being forced out to suburbs. And, you know, it used to be, uh, 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 we used to think, oh, living in the suburbs is, is something special. And, oh, I live in the suburbs. But white people uh, went to the suburbs. A lot of them went following Brown versus Board of Education. They went because they did not want their children going to school with black children. And so there was what was called white light. Some attempted still state moving this and that. No, no, no. The people didn't want their children to go and their white children going to school with black children. So they flew to the suburbs. But once they got out there, it was like, you know, it was a little cartoon, some of these little cartoons you put they put their feet in the mud, you know, and, and they're trying to put the brake on because, oh my goodness, we got out here and oh, there's nothing out here. All the cultural institutions are back in the city and oh we've made a terrible mistake so uh i would say to get whites back into the urban centers and push us out because we were sitting on the prime property when the white people left they left us there and we were on this good property but then when they got out in the suburbs, oh, oh, my goodness, we don't like it out here. There's nothing to do. My my sister Barbara and I in Chicago had um, several years' season tickets to uh, what was what is called the Sinfonietta, which was a small symphony, but it was conducted by African-American uh, conductor and composer Paul Freeman. And so for a number of years, we had season tickets. And, uh, you know, just around 8.30, you'd see white people would be getting up and leaving. And they would be leaving because maybe it's the last train to the suburbs or something like that. So they could not be, you know, remain for the entire concert because they had to get back to the suburbs. Well, you know, people are tired of doing that. You know, well, well we want to come back into the city. So uh, many things happened to encourage that and to make that possible. But as we look at the cities like Washington, D.C., which at one time was 70% African American and is now down to maybe 40%, uh, look at, cities like Philadelphia, and look at the city that people, uh, our listeners are in. They can look at their cities and see what's happening. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I remember when we uh, spoke this weekend, you were talking about Washington, D.C., because you lived there for about two decades, and you, you were you were talking about when they came with the, uh, the new Metro cards, I think it yes. was, in the illustration. Can you uh, share that with our audience? Well, yes. Uh, when they put the new Metro 
Ian the Mitchell was now about 30, 30 years old. But anyway, when they first put the underground trains in, um, they had a little character, character, character uh, drawing who had a Metro flashcard, and that was the card. He said, uh, card said, welcome to the new D.C. Now, the new D.C., this is a little white figure, and this was over 20 years ago, but this was a sign of things to come. An indication of the new D.C. was going to be different than the old D.C. It sounds like what Donald Trump is talking about now, doesn't it? The, uh, well, you know, we want to go back to the old America, the great America, you know. Uh, but in this case, the new D.C. was going to be the D.C. with fewer African Americans, and that has really happened. <coughs> mm-hmm. Context of white supremacy, our guest, uh, Ms. Lauren Cress Love. Uh, if folks have uh, questions, feel free to chime in. Uh, you can share the program, tweet it, put it on Facebook. If you have other uh, social media outlets, uh, let folks know uh, the program. We're on live right now. Uh, if you have a question you would like to ask Ms. Love, uh, the number 641-715-3640. And the code is 564-9. Four, three pound press star six if you would like to participate um i definitely I meant to get this when you spoke with us last time because this is so important and particularly with the uh medium that we have here uh but you invested a, a great deal of time uh starting up a radio broadcast uh in massachusetts uh, in the 1970s and you talked about your your love and appreciation for radio i had a quick sound clip just to see if you uh recognize this and then oh my goodness if you can uh if you could share with us just some of your your efforts at, at establishing independent uh black radio uh this is the sound click really quick we'll see if uh, miss love recognizes this The Peterhan Brewery Company, Brewers of Meisterbrow, presents card number 16 from the crime files of Flamand. <laughs> jog a memory? Did that jog a memory? <laughs> I told you that's wild. That is so wild. I <laughs> I told you the story of uh, my early <laughs> my love for radio and the fact that when I was in about the fifth grade, I uh, you could I think that that program was it was the Crime Files of Lamont, and it was a detective story, and I always liked the detective stories on radio and uh, so that particular program offered free tickets you could send for free tickets to visit the 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 show so I wrote for tickets and I think I had maybe five or six tickets and gave them to classmates and my mother took us down to this radio station and Lamont who had this deep marvelous wonderful voice 
ended up being a little bitty short white redhead guy, you know, <laughs> the shortest person uh, on on the stage. And you know, when you're doing radio, radio allows you to use your own imagination and to envisage envisage the people and the scenery. But then in the radio station, it's quite different. So I was rather disappointed to some extent. First of all, my hero, Flamont, didn't look like my hero at all. And then, but secondly, you know, people were just standing around these microphones. You've seen pictures of old-time radio productions where the whole group and then the, uh, is there and then the organist and people are reading from script. But it also, at another level, excited me about radio, and so when I was found myself in the University of Massachusetts in 1970 and was asked by a student to help him put some news on his uh, soul music program the previous year, several, about three students had persuaded the UMass students station to let them have uh, program time. So they were doing programs, and I think they didn't even come on until 10 o'clock at night. And so that meant that black students who wanted to hear soul music would have to be up really late. But anyway, one of the students, a young man named Danny Clowclaw, uh asked me if I could help him put some news on his soul music program. He said, you know, he, was, he didn't want to just play music. He wanted to hear some news. So I said, well, Danny, I don't know anything about radio, uh, but if I can help you get some news, I can hear some because this was 1970, and we were up there in in uh, Western Mass, and uh, it was it, no no very 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 few African American students in the five college area, maybe a thousand at the University of Massachusetts at that time, but you were not able to get very much information as to what was going on in America. And at that time, here was Angela was being looked for, uh, George Jackson, Jonathan Jackson, things happening with the Panthers, things happening all over America. And uh, up there in, in Western Mass, in the Pioneer Valley, as it's called, you couldn't hear anything. I mean, I think they would get maybe two two ebony magazines or something like a couple of jets in the drugstore. So Danny's invitation asking me to, if I could help him um, get some news on his program was, was kind of exciting. You know, let me, if I can help you get some, I can hear some. I called a brother in, in Chicago, uh, Lou House, who was, very involved in radio, but also with the civil rights movement, and asked him if he knew anyone on the East Coast who could help me. And he referred me to a Stan Latham, who was in New York and was producing programs like it, like it is. And I called him, and he referred me to a brother in, in Boston at WBUR, Preston Webster, who was uh, training African Americans in radio and television, and they were producing a program, a weekly program called The Drum. So I made contact with him, and he was so helpful, so helpful, so helpful. And so to make a 
to cut some of this long story, uh, Preston came to Amherst and ultimately helped me to get airtime on the public station. And this was before National Public Radio. National Public Radio did not exist at this time. You You had a conglomeration of stations in regional, and they were, you know, like Western Mass or Eastern Mass or, you know, Eastern Mass or whatever, but there was not a national public radio yet. So we ended up able to produce a number of programs, programs five days a week between the student station and the public station. And uh, I created a project called Black Mass Communication Project and made myself the executive director. And uh, we had a good time. We had an opportunity to air voices of many people uh, because at that time, the University, uh, University of Massachusetts had one of the largest African-American studies programs, in at least on the East Coast and maybe in the country. They had, a, oh, maybe 30 faculty people. So we were able to uh, take advantage of those people also as, as people on the air, but also lots of African-Americans came up to UMass Amherst and just uh, all kind of people. Actually... Um, Natalie Cole, who since, or unfortunately, she's passed, but she was a student at UMass Amherst, and she knew, believe it or not, hardly anything about her father and his music. And one of the people, a brother named, uh, he's now a PhD, Dr. Willie Hassan, who was doing a program on jazz music on the public station at UMass, met her and was able to introduce her to the great work of her father, Nat King Cole. She did not know his work. She was singing with a group of, uh, of you know, I don't know, punk rockers or something like that, uh, you know, not doing the fine work that she later uh, was able to do, but it was a result of someone introducing her to her father's work. But um, that's just an aside. Uh, but in 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 Amherst, uh, we were able to broadcast and interview Muhammad Ali and Howard Moore, Dick Reedy, and Shirley Graham Du Bois, the uh, widow of Dr. Du Bois, and many many other. People who are on our airwaves, uh, you know, as a result of my helping a student put some news on his radio program. Okay. Wow. <laughs> wow. That is fascinating on so many different layers. Um, even that about Natalie King Cole, she passed away right at the beginning of, of the year, uh, very close right. to, to the time of, of Dr. Welsing's transition. We were, we're Exactly. Kind of, talking about those together that is amazing that she was not very informed about uh her her father's legendary work and and even the extraordinary amounts of white supremacy that he faced i know they uh we talked about nat king cole as well they killed the family dog uh at their house and burned nigger in their yard uh while i mean this was when he was at the height of his fame and he was still treated just another nigger uh he and his family um and that right there, I think, goes back to what you said at the very beginning when you were talking about StoryCorps and encouraging black people to take advantage. Uh, if you're in an area 
uh, where you have access to this to get out and, and tell your story and to share this information uh, so that more black people can hear this, can access this, because this, in my view, is such a, a monumental problem. Uh, where black people just don't have access uh, to media, to platforms where you can hear a Dr. Welsing or a Dick Gregory or any numerous folks, Carl Nelson and his platform, where just racists have done such a skillful job uh, to eliminate uh, those types of media outlets so that you have fewer and fewer opportunities uh, for black people to reach a wide audience uh, of people and to to impact their thinking so that they could hear Dr. Welsing's uh, theories, views, that sort of thing. I think that's that's been one of the main things. And like I said, going back to your earlier point about try to take advantage if you do have some of those outlets in your area. That was a little wild. Uh, Whole internet uh, crashed, uh, was not able to uh, reconnect, but uh, should have that uh, taken care of. I'm redialing Miss Love Uh, right now uh, make sure I get my live line back as well could be racist interference Gus did not do anything uh, that time that was not me Uh, that was uh, (laughs) I can only chalk that up to uh, suspected racist interference but uh, I am reconnecting us right now okay got that back and now I'll uh, redial uh, Miss Love and get her back on the program Alrighty, forgive the ring uh, in the background. All right, here we go. That is crazy. Hello. Yes, ma'am. I, my apologies. We had some technical issues where my whole line got disconnected, and it took me a second to uh, figure out the problem and get us reconnected, but. I back. thought maybe we had been hacked or jammed. <laughs> I just said that to our listeners that I suspect that that is that could have happened. Uh, it did ring pretty hard here today, but that normally does not disrupt the uh, internet signal or what have you. But uh, whatever it was, deliberate interference or no, uh, we got the problem corrected. Um, I was saying at the moment that we got uh, disconnected just about the importance of, of media platforms, black media platforms, uh, going back to what you said at the very beginning of the broadcast where uh, you were encouraging uh, black people, if if you have StoryCorps or another outlet that's in your area, to make sure that you take advantage of that so that we can get our stories out, get this information out. And I was saying that I think that's something uh, white supremacists have done really a superb job at trying to uh, cancel, obliterate those type of black media platforms so that you can't get access to a Dr. Welsing's voice or a Dick Gregory's voice, your voice, just to get constructive information on what's happening to us. Did you want to add anything to that? Well, I would say that I'm not totally aware of all the action that is going on in uh, independent media. So I have to be you know, brought up to date on on some of the machinations that are going on. I know as as a person who uh, was one of the founders of WPFW, uh, Pacifica Radio in Washington, D.C., back in the early 70s, uh, it took uh, probably about 10 years for Pacifica to get a license the channel in Washington because uh, the the foundation 
was known to be uh, very liberal, uh, if not just left-wing. And uh, all the machinations in the, in the nation's capital did not want a, uh, a, a radio station with Pacifica's reputation in the District of Columbia. And then once uh, it was revealed that... Uh, that black people were going to be in charge of the station, it got even worse. And we had a terrible time getting on the air, just a, a really terrible, terrible, terrible time getting on, on the air. Mm-hmm. So I think that we have to become a lot more vigilant and a, more, a lot more active. We owe it to ourselves to protect those entities that are available to us for our own voices. And when people ask for help, the listeners need to step up to the plate and help, however that help is asked, whether it's write a letter, do whatever. You know, we can't just keep sitting back and waiting for somebody else to do it. We have to really get the courage to do it ourselves. Mm. Ashe, absolutely, absolutely. Um, We had... Some folks with questions, I just wanted to ask. I had two other questions really quick, and then we'll get to some of the folks who dialed in who had a question or two. Um, okay. When you visited with us earlier this year and you talked about your experience in SNCC and going mm-hmm. down south uh, in Mississippi and, and doing some of the campaigns to work against racism and voter registration drives and what have you, uh, and you spoke about the white people who came to, quote-unquote, help, uh, and you commented on some of the ways that they were treated. I remember you, you shared the anecdote about how uh, I think they would end with a prayer. And uh, it was a black person who said, you know, he wanted to give an especially robust a minister. Round. Yeah, a black minister <laughs> wanted, you know, special prayers for the white folks mm-hmm. who have come down to help us, Lord. But, <laughs> I, and you said. But n- not any prayers. Black people mm-hmm. who had come down who had probably risked more Mm -hmm. because they didn't have the same kind of backing and income in instances that the white people who came down did, you know. But, again, I mean, that's, you know, how, how, and well, we're talking about 40, 50 years ago, but how how we saw ourselves, how we see ourselves, juxtaposition to how we were trained to see and feel about white people. And, I mean, that's just, you know, kind of straight down the line from the plantation to the present moment. So we have a lot of mental work to do. You know, when we were in in the 60s, when we, those of us who went south and those of us who didn't and who marched were in there, communities or protested in their communities or organized in their communities around racism, white supremacy. We thought that if we made white people let us sit at the lunch counter, let us um, drink their white water, let us, uh, pardon the expression, sit on their white white toilet stools, let us, you know, just have all the, you know, benef- benefits of, of their schools and their 
uh, of stores, et cetera, that that would free us. But we actually, I believe, have more difficulty now, more more people on drugs, more people in jail, more children having children uh, than we did in the 60s. So obviously that was not the answer. Also, we fought to to and died to get the right to vote. But essentially, at least from my point of view, we are in many instances in worse condition than we were maybe 50 years ago, more broken families, more homelessness. So we need to go back to the drawing board and to um, ask ourselves, well, 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 what what happened? Well, we did all these things, and 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 we're still in really bad condition. What was it that we did not understand? And we need to be asking ourselves those questions. And I think that one of the things that we didn't understand is that this is not a political issue. And Dick Gregory, not Dick, but uh, Jesse Jackson, was quoted a number of years ago as saying that the, this is not a political issue. This is a spiritual issue. And I later asked him about that, and he said, well, he thinks it's both political and spiritual. But if we look at what happened to us and to our ancestors by being kidnapped and by taken from their families and put on that boat and by the millions, and what did that do on those individuals, and then what did was that effect on the subsequent uh, 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 subsequent children born of those people, and then what happened to those people and those people on down to the present time, where we've never had hardly anyone outside of Dr. Francis Crest Wellesley talking about how do we need special we need special therapy. We need a different understanding of, of of our condition than this what's been passed down to us from Freud, et cetera. Uh, we need to, our, our therapists and our, our theorists need to look at our condition and see our condition and understand how do you, what is the treatment against racism, white supremacy? What is the antidote for that? And don't give me a pill. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, I wanted, because I think when you were with us last time and you were sharing about SNCC, uh, you said uh, you were talking about the role specifically of, of white women that came down. And this ended up being something uh, in terms of your observations about uh, sexual intercourse uh, that was happening with all of this. And you said, we don't we don't have to talk about that right now, but that is important. Uh, and I was going to see what, what you specifically observed, what your thoughts were on that. Well, I don't really want to talk about that because, you know, whenever you have, at, at another level, whenever you have young people, men and women, and, uh, well, I say men and women at least, you're going to have sexual activity. Now, black men being denied, denied opportunity to, to, uh, intercourse uh, and I don't mean that just sexually, but with white women over a period of time and losing your life as a re- you know as a result of that, it certainly has made the white woman much more enticing. And then, from my understanding, 
And as I look at the picture, white women have had a different a different experience in America than black women have had. Black women have always had to work. You know, we've always known we had to work. And the only difference was what kind of work were we going to do as opposed to whether we could just stay home and look at the soaps and take care of the children, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. That's created a different kind of individual than the individual who, uh, and white women go to college. They originally start going to college to find men. You know, I think black women went to college not so much to find men, but to get an education so they could get a job because they knew they would have to work. But originally, white women really just went to colleges and these, you know, sister colleges up there like Smith and uh, Holyoke and those places, those sister colleges up there, that was to teach you so that you, you know, would have intelligence enough to make a good wife. But it wasn't originally just to so that you could have a job. But that's why we went to college so that we could really get educated so because we knew we would have to work because we'd always worked. You know, and it's very rare that African-American women just stay home. Even on welfare, it's because you don't have a job. So uh, I know I talked with you about white women in the movement as versus black women. You know, the women's movement, many of uh, the, much of the women's movement uh, started out, out of the civil rights movement where White women felt that, you know, black men were suppressing them and they were not able to do some of the things that they wanted to do. Uh, my perspective was I was glad to see black men in charge of something. And even though some of them were somewhat oppressive, I was glad to see them running projects, being in charge for a change. Uh, so I had a different uh, perspective on on um, that particular aspect of the movement than some people, and then probably especially white people, women who, you know, were just kind of coming out from under um, uh, the rug that they had been swept up under by white America and, and flexing their muscles a bit. So I, one example, when I was running my radio project, uh, young a young uh, lady, white, came to uh, our studio and she was working with a collective and she wanted to, they wanted to do a radio program. Well, not on our air time, but, you know, they were interested. So we talked. But she was interested because she was <clears throat> very dirty, just scrubby, just dirty, dirt on her fingernails, dirt on her sweatshirt, just dirty, grubby. And in Amherst, Amherst is just such a little clean place. You know, it's hard to get dirty there. You know, it's just just clean, clean, clean. And so I just wondered how this young woman uh, got so dirty. Well, sometime later, I was on a panel myself with Johnetta Cole, who was on the faculty then, later went to, became the president of Spelman and now has the African, the Museum of African Arts, or maybe, yeah, the Museum of African Arts here in D.C., but anyway, Janetta was on, we were the two African Americans on that panel, and this was early, you know, talking about women's lib, and so all of these women mostly were talking about uh, what 
women's lib meant for them and, you know, it meant the opportunity. We are going to work and we're going to be in charge and we're going to do this and that. Well, this young lady was on, on the panel also and in her discussion and description of her life, she was a little person who had grown up never able, never allowed to get dirty. You know, I always had to have little pretty princesses' dresses on and things like that. She was never allowed to do work, really. And so once she got away from home and got to college, her determination was that she was going to, she was going to you know, uh, just get rid of that little princess image and uh, become a real person. And so she was with a, a, uh, a, a co- collective of women who were learning how to work on cars. And so that explained to me uh, why she was walking. She was walking around with dirty fingernails and stuff with pride because she had thrown off this little princess uh, uh, act that had been forced on her at home and she was getting ready to step forward and be a real person. Well, my position as I listened to a lot of these women about they were going to be working and they were going to do this and they were going to do that. And I had never known not working. My mother worked. My grandmother worked. My great-grandmother worked. I had never known of not working, you know, all the way back to slavery. And so (laughs) I thought that, well, and I said, well, maybe for me women's lib would be not working and just sitting at home and watching the television and taking care of a couple of children. Maybe for me that would be women's liberation as opposed to uh, what I'm doing now and have never thought I wouldn't do is to work. You know, we never thought that we would not work. It's just what kind of work did you do? So that was one of my experiences. Fascinating, Doctor. Excuse me again, Miss Lauren Cress Love. Uh, we had a few folks that dialed in who had questions. Uh, if folks have anything they would like to ask Miss Love, uh, we'll hit the phone lines. Uh, the number again: six four one seven one five three six four zero, and the code is five six four nine four three pound. Press star six. If you have a question, uh, let's see, Mr. Thomas in New York, did you have a question for Miss Love? You should be with us. Yes. Good evening. Good evening, Doc. Good evening to Miss Love. Hello. Um, I have two, two questions for you, really. Um, uh, first one is, um, do you think that it was um, foul play involved in the death of your brother-in-law? Yes. Yes, I do. Mm-hmm. Okay, um, do you, why, why do you think that? Well, I think that because, and uh, this is not something that someone else has said, but my brother-in-law had applied to uh, NASA, and the astronaut program in, at NASA. He had applied three times, and he had been rejected. And later I have understood that, you know, that was, NASA was located down in Alabama and that they were real rednecks, you know, in that program. 
And, uh, you know, I may be, you know, cited for saying that, but this is what I've been told and has been said, that it was a racist program. And the fact that uh, Ed Dwight had been spirited out of, of, of the program uh, after Kennedy's death and then, you know, what happened to my brother-in-law. And at the time, there were two programs. One was the MO program that the Air Force had, and one was the other was the, the space program, NASA space program, which were going to be combined. And I just think that it's never been totally explained how Bob's uh, parachute did not open. Because the way he died was when the plane went down, the seats ejected, but his parachute did not open. You know? So, yes. Yes. I do. Mm-hmm. Oh, thank you for elaborating. I, I, I agree. Um, my second question for you was, um, there's been a lot of talk, especially in the politics, about uh, heavily use around amongst young white people. And I about what? Huh? About what? Could about, you repeat uh, that? Yes, ma'am. Can you hear me? Yeah. Uh, um, heavily use amongst young white children, young white people in general. Um, and um, it was a report that was um, came out last week, thus played it on the weekend show, where whites want to now um, legalize heroin. And I just want to know what was your thoughts on that, and I'll meet my line. Thank you. Want to legalize heroin? Right. Well, I think the legalization of marijuana is, is, is very dangerous. Marijuana is a drug, and to legalize it so that everybody is just free to be on it suggest to me that this is a way of being able to, uh, in the future, quiet people down when they don't have jobs, as jobs become fewer and uh, more and more, more and more programs uh, and industry is more mechanized and computerized. So we don't need all these people. And uh, so let them smoke, let them smoke uh, marijuana. Marie Antoinette said, let them eat cake. You know, when when they didn't have uh, money for bread and stuff, let them eat cake. That's what she said. That started a revolution, too, by the way. But uh, uh, the idea of legalizing drugs, people need to understand this is very, very dangerous. Very dangerous, and especially for people who find themselves distressed, oppressed, um Sitting on the sidelines, well, okay, I'll just take me a little nod or just give me a little something or another to just to make the day go by. Yeah, right, well. So I think that any time we hear people saying things that, like that or advocating, we need to ask why, who and why, and where is it coming from? Fascinating. Right on, uh, Thomas, in New York, that... Uh your response, Miss Love, that sounds uh, strikingly similar to views that Dr. Welsing shared uh, on this program uh, a couple of times uh, since they've been talking. Oh, really? Yes, ma'am. <laughs> uh, well, you know, listen, my sister and I talked. We we're 11 months and 13 days difference in our ages, and we talk 
uh, talked a lot. And uh, so, you know, I'm sure that I will have echoed many of her views, you know, but probably some of my mind, too. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. I, I will just add for the record, that was uh, one of the few times where she expressed a view and uh, many, many uh, listeners uh, did not agree and were like, man, I, I do not uh, support Dr. Welsing on that one. I think this will be great. I know. On drugs? Uh, yes, with the legalization. Yes, of- I understand that. I do understand that. But people need to understand why they're so adamant, you know. You know, anytime there's something that's going to make you feel good and help you to resist and not get up and and raise your fist and say power to the people, you know, we need to understand. When at the end of the civil rights movement, as we were coming out of the 60s into the 70s, where black people were saying, I'm black and I'm proud, I'm black and I'm proud, and we were feeling good about ourselves. What happened? What happened? The next thing we knew, there were drugs in our community. We didn't bring them in there. We didn't create them, but we took them. And then the next thing we knew, we were walking around, men walking around in high heel shoes, talking about super fly, and I'm super bad. No, no, no. We 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 need to understand what when 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 white folks start making stuff available to us, what is it for and what will it do? Is it going to help us overcome racism, white supremacy, or is it going to help us succumb to racism, white supremacy? That's what I have to say. Do you see any any logic to people who say, well, a lot of these uh, drug laws, they were founded in racism, white supremacy, and just trying to lock up and criminalize uh, entire you know, groups of black people so that they can't get a job, they can't vote, uh, they can't get grants for education, and just long litany of all these penalties and what have you. And it's been a big part of the uh, what they call prison industrial complex. And so getting rid or legalizing uh, at least uh, cannabis, uh, marijuana, at least legalizing that will keep a lot of black people out of being confined and will keep them from having all of these uh, criminal problems in their life. What, does that make any sense to you? Is that logical? Well, I hear that, but I'm not sure that that's the way it's going to work. Once you legalize a substance so that it's broadly available, then more and more people will take advantage of it. And more and more people will just be sitting quietly smoking and 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 letting the day go by because they can't get a job or whatever. Now, I don't know about my sister. I doubt very seriously if she ever had any experience with with uh, marijuana. I don't think so, but I, I did. And uh, my experience is that you marijuana makes you think that something is that isn't. It makes you think that stuff is cool that in reality out off of that is isn't. And so it distorts. Now you know, anything that's going to distort the mind does not seem to me to be the most advantageous or the most uh the best for for one's health and, and vitality. It just doesn't seem to be that way. And I I had experiences with marijuana that number one time got really, really sick 
And another time, I was I was editing a newspaper, and um, <laughs> listen, I we it was a uh, the deadline was the day the day before the day after Christmas Christmas. I forget if it's a jazz musician now. Nah. But anyway, I had been to a concert with friends, and before that we had had dinner, and we had had, you know, a little smoking up some little, you know, marijuana and stuff. And I had to go back to my office and write this paper. And I, I'm telling you, I thought I was writing some of the baddest, you know, oh, yes, bad, baddest, baddest, baddest articles, you know, I had ever written. And when that stuff was published, it was some of the silliest, most ignorant stuff on the planet Earth. People, what happened? What was wrong with the paper? Well, you know, on and on. And then I realized two realities, the reality of, under the effect of the drugs and the reality in the, in the world where most people are. Those are two realities. And so I, you can't trust it. You can't trust it. So that's my experience. You know, so... That's what I have to say about that. And, you know, any time the white man puts something out here in some kind of way, what what have been the positive things that have been put out in the community in the last 50 years for African-American people that will really, really help us? I would like people to call and, and let me know about some of those things. And if they think that marijuana legalization is one, you know, I just have to question it. Questions always appreciate just being suspicious, critical question. Use your brain computer, as Dr. Welsing would say. Uh, Ross, uh, did you have a question for Miss Love? You should be with us. Uh, yes, uh, greetings to you, Gus, and greetings to you, Mrs. Cresslove. Um, it's an honor to speak to you, and um, thank you so much for just being on the program. You're just a wealth of, of knowledge and it's just been an incredible evening. Um, my first question was, have any black psychiatrists um, contacted you or discussed with you um, maybe picking up Dr. Wilson's mantle as far as in their, um, their psychiatry practice, um, focusing on racism, white supremacy to help uh, black people and non-white people? No, uh, not as yet. I don't know of anyone. Uh, I mean, maybe someone will. I would say that, um, no, no, let, let me just say no. You know, and it's a really a tragedy. It's a real tragedy that Howard University, uh, back some 40 years ago, whenever that was, did not have the courage to keep Dr. Welsing on faculty so that she could make a major contribution to the field of psychiatry and the field of medicine from a perspective of an African American. I mean, you know, if 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 a, if if the research researchers, animals have melanin also, right? Now, white rats are albinos. They do not have melanin. They lack melanin. Well, if you lack something in and 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 melanin comes out of the central nervous system, it affects all aspects of people's thinking and hearing, I would think. I don't know. I'm not a scientist, but I would just think that. So when scientists use white animals for their 
for their uh, research, those are white people representing white people, not people of color, which is nine-tenths of the world's population. So that may even affect medications that people take, et cetera, you know, all kinds of, of healing processes because the research is done on animals that represent a minority. They themselves are a minority. I think people ought to think about that. Thank you. That was brilliant. Um, it gave me a lot to think about as well. Um, my next question was, um, when you told the story of your mistreatment when you were attempting to get a job through the agency, it really mm-hmm. speaks to the damage to black mental health that can take place with us, with seemingly everyday things. So in other words, these are things we experience all the time, but we don't always take the time to realize the, imp- the deep impact it can have on us. And I just wanted to ask, um, what do you think the, the difference might have been in your reaction had you been in contact with the knowledge that you have now in regards to racism, white supremacy? Um, how do you think at all that your reaction would have been different or maybe you might have dealt with the situation differently, being aware of that, um, just looking at the knowledge you've acquired till now? Yeah, I, I do think so. I think that um, that over 50 years later, <laughs> that... Uh, that uh, just knowing and understanding uh, the system of racism and the system of white supremacy and the fact that, you know, uh, unfortunately, or I, and this is not to, to, you know, well, let me change this because people take offense. And it's not my uh, attempt to offend white listeners. But we as African Americans have have had to struggle to overcome the effects of racism, white supremacy. You know, you have had to struggle. People have had to look in the mirror and try to find good looking, you know, compared to some white person that we're told is the sexiest woman or man in the world. You got to look. You got to look. You got to look at your hair and really kind of come to come come to terms that you are not going to have little long flowing blonde locks like a little white princess. And so, how do I see myself as beautiful? What do I have to? How do I turn my mind around to see myself as beautiful when this is supposed to be beauty? So it's a lot of work that one has to do and that some of us have done over the years. You know, more and more women uh, have stopped straightening their hair and stopped, you know, which is really dangerous because those chemicals going into your skin and to your scalp go down into your brain and go into your mind. That's, that's, That's dangerous. That's really dangerous. But, you know, all for beauty. But uh, so more and more people are are looking at their hair and beginning to try to love it, you know, love the feel of it, looking at their skin and love that black skin, you know, really, oh, oh, this is beautiful, beautiful, but this is really hard, even up, even up to now, it's hard. And actually, even though I have, you know, that experience all those years ago, there's still residuals in, in my own personality. I see it. You know, certain residuals uh, where you don't want to be hurt, 
uh, so you don't move into situations or where you might be hurt. So, yes, I think that, uh, but I, I think African Americans in general have had these experiences, but we don't want to talk about them. And we need to talk about them because if you talk about them, you get, get it out as opposed to, to, to being crushed. You know, I mean, just standing, I don't, I don't, I'm afraid to ask to, to hail a cab. I'm afraid because I don't want to be rejected. I don't know if some people who have, you know, had the cab driver drive by you and stuff like that and the humiliation. Black men, you know, the, even the president said he had had such experiences. You know, what does that mean? What does that do? Or when you go into a restaurant and they, by chance, maybe they they don't mean to, but they take you to a back, you know, table still, and you wonder, well, you know, is this because I'm black or is this because whatever reasons? So, uh, or people who say right to this day, it down in Macy's or wherever, Target or wherever, and feel like they're being followed by a person who is a detective, whereas the white people who are stealing like everything just to get away like fat white rats. Well, whatever. Thank you so much for that. And um, I just had one last question. Is it okay, guys? Proceed. Okay, thank you. I have one one last question. Um. Some of us, including the host of the show, doesn't like the use of the term uh, brother because of the fact that black people don't act as if we're brothers and sisters, and I completely understand that. Um, but for me, I find that calling another black person's male or female brother or sister psychologically helps to condition me to look at them as such. Um, and do you think that that is a positive thing for um, some of us to actually utilize as far as just changing the psychology? Because it's harder to mistreat someone that you call brother or sister versus someone that you might call out of their name or something of that nature. Right. Well, I, I, I'm, I'm not aware. Uh, yeah, I'm not aware of of of, of that controversy. Um, I I I tend to to use that term uh, frequently. Uh, you know, to people, even people that I don't know. If I'm standing on the street waiting for a bus and somebody passes, you know, I say, hey, brother, how you doing, or something like that. Um, I think it's an important term. Um, I think that, well, I think that, as you said, that the, the more you use the term and, and it's it, when you call a person brother, it makes a difference, I think, perhaps in terms of the person that sees you. Now, I've heard people say, I ain't your brother. Don't be calling me brother. I ain't your brother. But that hasn't stopped me. And I, I, I use the term, and I use it frequently, and I use it to uh, African-Americans as well as Africans and other Africans from other parts of, of, of the world, the diaspora. Mm-hmm. Thank you so much. Um, I'll mute my line. Thank you so much for your answer. Um, that that just for me, I just find it personally helpful to do that. Um, and I completely understand the logic as to why some of us who don't feel comfortable with that don't. It's completely logical. We mistreat each other all the time in many situations. So I can get that. But I just find, I guess, being a child of the '70s and being raised in an environment 
in which I was taught to uh, um, to uh, address other black people, like you said, diasporan Africans, continental mm-hmm. um, American Africans as well, as brother and sister. It helps me as well, just on a psychological level, to maintain that black self-respect whenever I encounter other black people. Even if they say, I'm not your brother, it's okay. You know, I'll take that and keep right. it moving and just say, hey, they're just, they're just a little uh, more damaged, I would say, by the system, and I will keep it moving. But for me, I just find that to be helpful. Thank you so much. Right. Uh, but I, 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 that phrase, more damage, uh, uh, is, is, is an important understanding. I think that, you know, that we do have brothers and sisters who are harmed, more harmed than some of the rest of us. And so they reflect that harm in their actions. But we need to understand that this is, this is the system that is really at the bottom responsible for what's going on to people. And the fact that the limited educational, the lack of African-centered education in our schools, the, the, the historic, the historic demeaning of a people, historic, historic for we, what, what is it, 500 years now? All of these, these aspects impinge on people's psyche impinge on, 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 on people. You know, we're talking about all this help for veterans who have been in, in uh, the war, been away three years in uh, post-traumatic stress syndrome. But nobody's talking about post-traumatic slave syndrome and the stuff that has been put on us and continues to be put on us ever since the first African was put on a slave ship and brought to the so-called new world. So we, you know, what about our psyche? We have been, we're damaged. Amazing that we are able to get some of us through college and and can speak the, the English halfway decently and can create a radio network and radio programs. That's amazing because it's not supposed to be that way. You know, it wasn't supposed to be that way. We're not supposed to be able to do this based on the treatment that we received and continue to receive. So uh, I think that one thing, if we could start being kinder to those people whose behavior we don't really approve of and understand what had happened to them. You know, this pull yourself up by your bootstraps when you don't even have a boot, you know, to, to pull on is ludicrous. So um, I guess that's what I have to say about that. <laughs> okay. For sure. Appreciate that. Uh, caller that dialed in from a block number. Did you have a question for Miss Lauren Cress Love? You should be with us. Uh, greetings. Can I be heard? Yes, sir. Greetings, Miss Love. Um, Hi. My question is, how you doing? Uh, I'm doing pretty good. Thank yes. you. Uh, thanks for being on the program. Everything I've heard so far is is is, is on point, man. We're, we're very grateful and thankful to have you join us. Mm-hmm. My question is, um, you know, the psychological damage that you were talking about is is in full effect, like with young people and older people. 
mm-hmm. like you know pe- you know yeah black black people you know trying to be entrepreneurs and they go and um you know try to get a client try to get you know get a you know a company to sign on and the contract with them and they get denied and they won't go back you know like you're supposed mm-hmm. to you're supposed to go back you know after about 3 months you know try again and a lot of times you you know you'll you'll get the contract but you know I'm finding like a lot of they you know they a lot of a lot of a lot of people won't go back and their business their businesses end up failing and things like that so my question is um what what would you have told yourself like if you were in charge of your young self so that you know so that when you went out for your um job and you were told that you know you wouldn't get the job because you were black and you know just the way that it devastated you what what would you have how would you have prepared yourself if you could have um um for that and and and, and you mean now like now yeah, like as opposed yeah, to so when it I would have affected you so bad, you know, like. Well, I don't know back then. I don't know back then what I would have done because that was another time. You know what I'm saying? In other words, back in the fifties, we did not have the. Back in the fifties, we did not have the plethora, the large numbers of black thinkers that we have now. That that. Since, since the 50s and from the 60s forward. We didn't have these people like Dr. J- Dr. John Henry Clark and, and Asa Hilliard and Dr. Ben and Dr. Welsing and Marimba Ani and just the list goes on and on. We didn't have all these books and writers available to us as we have now. So back then... I don't know what I would have told myself, whatever it was, I didn't know what to tell myself. But I think that I have, well, let me just speed up. Right now, we have writers, we have things that we can read to bolster our sense of self. There are all kinds of of, of things to uh, to just go online. And, and view the number of African American writers who are writing on various subjects close to, to this discussion. But also, Romans 12.2 says, Be ye transformed by the renewal of your mind. Be ye transformed by the renewal of your mind. So we have to change our minds. We have to renew our minds. We have to renew our thinking about ourselves. And I would say that, you know, there, there are all kinds of, of self-improvement programs going on out here available. Now, they're not necessarily specifically directed to people of color, but they are directed to human beings. So if one begins to expose himself to some of these programs out here that are available, you know, to help one improve oneself, just because they're, you know, for white people doesn't mean that they won't work. As someone said, as a matter of fact, Minister Farrakhan said, that 
people have not complained about uh, uh, getting a degree from Harvard and where all the teachers were white. You know, I haven't complained about getting a degree from uh, uh, Yale where all the teachers are white or even Howard where some of the teachers are white. I haven't complained and, and, and dismissed their degree because, you know, there were no black people teaching them. So look at some of these other areas of thinking and, and self-improvement that are, yes, indeed, uh, designed primarily for white people, but will work for black people. So I say that we have to find out how to improve ourselves and improve our minds. And, uh, uh, yeah, that's one of the things I think that's very necessary. Does that answer anything? <laughs> yep, thousand percent. Uh, it wasn't. It wasn't what I was expecting, but you, you really. Oh, really? really <laughs> I mean, it was. Yeah, I, I, I don't know, but it was a lot better than, than, than. I mean, it was. It was. Uh, it was very much on point. Like what you're saying, as far as educating ourselves, get you know, uh, and with an understanding of, of you know, because it's it's, it's a thing of low self-esteem. Like I mean, yes, fragile man. Like that, yes. Trick, we'll pop our yes. Would destroy our lives, you know. So yes, um, I agree with that. And yes, uh, and you know, yes. I, now let me say I this. I'm interrupting you, but let me say this. A lot of these self improvements, these this self improvement, uh, whole program and category has been going on since before the turn of the century, and a lot of folk have written books. They were not written for black people. They were written for white people and primarily for, started for helping people improve themselves so they could sell more. Like Dale Carnegie, uh, how to win friends and influence people and stuff like that. Those books were not written for African Americans. They were written for white folks who needed to improve themselves and, 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 and so that they could sell. A lot of that stuff is around, really started around improving people's ability to sell, which had to do with losing, losing your lack of a sense of self, uh, building up your self-confidence, feeling good about yourself, et cetera, et cetera, which suggests that these people have not always felt and still don't really feel too good about themselves. But anyway, that's what a lot of this stuff is for. So if it will work to some degree for them, well, we need to try some of this stuff ourselves to 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 uh, improve our sense of self. Uh, uh, to to straighten our backs out. Uh, yeah, yeah, that's what we need to do. And 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 the more we read, really read, the better we feel. The more knowledge we have. You know, so that's what we need to be turn off the television too and stop, you know, put down these texting and stuff to somebody who doesn't know any more than you know, you know, and, and start checking out somebody who does know something that's beneficial. Uh, yeah, right. Okay. <laughs> Absolutely. We got a lot of work to do, brothers and sisters. We have a lot of work to do. Oh man, you are killing it, man! Thank you so much for answering my question. Oh my goodness, thank you so much. I mean, you, you're, you're spot on. 
I mean, I agree, and that's what. Uh, thank you, Gus. Um, hey, did we read that book, uh, How to Win Friends and Influence People? Yes, we did. <laughs> uh, we, yeah, you know, let me. Can, I can. I can pitch another one. Can I pitch another one? Yes, ma'am. Absolutely. <laughs> I would tell people this book has been very beneficial to me. It's called Love Yourself and Let the Other Person Have It Your Way. Love Yourself and Let the Other Person Have It Your Way. It's $12.95 on, on Amazon. I don't get a penny for it. The author is a man named Lawrence Crane. Lawrence Crane. Now, this book, just get the book. It is a workbook. It is not a book to just say, oh, yeah, I read that. No, you just can't. But it is a workbook, and that man serves as a therapist. The writer serves as a therapist. And the basis of his book is, or his his thinking is, he says that people, now this is not written for black people especially, but he says, people, we're always, as people, we're always beating up on ourselves. We're constantly beating up on ourselves. And by that, you know, just, you know, just kind of, well, oh, I shouldn't have done that. Or why'd you do that? Or, uh, uh, the things that we say to ourselves. He says that's negative that, you know, like attracts like. So if you are saying negative things to yourself, you're attracting more negative negativity into your system. So he actually acts as a therapist and asks you to let go of beating up on yourself or let go of disapproving of yourself. And then he takes you from there to approving of yourself. Now, can you give yourself some approval? And you say yes. And can you give yourself some more approval? And you say yes. And you will actually move from disapproving to approval of yourself. And you can use this in many areas of your livingness. So I would suggest that people get that book and $12.95, and it really helps. It will help in a lot of ways. It helps if you're getting sick because he says, like, if you're getting a cold, then you're focusing on the cold. And you're saying, oh, I don't want the cold. Oh, I'm getting a cold. I'm getting... So he says, let go of, let go of disapproving of yourself and give yourself some credit and approve of yourself and approve of the cold and the cold will go away. You know, as long as you, as long as you disapprove of it, it will stay there because like attracts like. But if you start giving the cold some love, you know, it, you'll feel better. It works. So I really need to call the author and say, listen, I'm telling people to buy your book. Can I get a commission or something? But, uh... <laughs> <laughs> oh, man, that's too funny. Thank you. Oh, man, thank you again, man. Thanks, Gus. <laughs> this, was, this, was, this was dope, man. For sure. She reminded me of that book when I spoke with her this weekend. I got it uh, when we spoke last time. I uh, have been reading. Uh, I have not been trying to sprint through it. I have been trying to read slow and uh, take some notes. So I'll share a thought or two once I uh, have completed uh, the book. But Yeah, right, right. Well, tell a few of your listeners to get it and learn how to how to get rid of the blues and stuff. Well, thank you so much for having me and allowing me to 
share some time with your listeners. I greatly appreciate it. Uh, the pleasure has been ours. Uh, we have thoroughly enjoyed it, uh, just having you on the program, and hopefully we can uh, have you back to speak with us uh, again. Uh, I had the uh, the address, the information, in case folks wanted to uh, look to contribute to uh, the fund that you all have uh, have set up. I know because I told you that that was something I wanted to uh, to make sure we shared on the program. Uh, it looks like it was printed in the program from the service this past mm-hmm. Saturday. Um, you can show your support for Dr. Frances Cress Welsing and the continuance of her work by making a contribution to the Cress Welsing Love Fund at paypal.com. The payee is Cress Welsing Love Fund at gmail.com. I'll give out that address again. It is Cress Welsing Love Fund, all one word, no spaces, at gmail.com and then donations can also be mailed to the Cress Welsing Love Fund P.O. Box 55357 Washington, D.C. 20040 All that information right there. I'll make sure to put it on the Facebook page as well if folks uh, would like to contribute, but you all are trying to get educational resources together for young black children uh, based on the teachings of Dr. Welsing. Is that correct? Yes, yes, and we'll be really hard at work uh, determining how, well, not just young children, but, you know, people of all ages, how we can break this down and uh, and create some special programs. And and also to release some of her tapes, mm. past tapes. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, I had told folks, uh, Danny Queen, uh, who archived a lot of the uh, Wellsing Crest Wellsing Institute uh, lecture series. He's been a guest on that program and have been reminding folks that you can go to his website. Also, he has uh, archives uh, that you can go back. I mean, spanning years, uh, decades, uh, where you can go yes. back and and hear some yes. of the different. Uh, I even heard one where you were in attendance. She called you out, and uh, I think Mr. Fuller was there. Uh, you. We'll hear all kinds of amazing things, but uh, again, just uh, thank you so much for being uh, willing to speak with us this uh, this evening, and hopefully uh, we will look forward to having you uh, back on the program uh, in the near future. Well, thank you. Thank you very much, and uh, I have enjoyed, enjoyed myself, and I hope that I have been of benefit to your listeners. Thank you so much, and good night. Good evening, uh, Ms. Cresslove context of white supremacy wow grand to have her speak with us once again uh if folks need that uh address uh if you would like to contribute uh to the work that's going on uh just let me know again i'm just gonna put it on the facebook page so that people can access it there you can uh write down if you need the email address or uh the paypal or the mailing address of people that are not into all that electronic stuff or what have you and you just want a physical uh mailing address you'll have all of that information uh on the facebook page so that you can uh do what you need to to support uh the many efforts i think sabrina johnson when she was with us uh earlier this month uh, i think she told us as well that they're looking to continue uh, the Crest Welsing Institute. Uh, so lots of different ways, uh, making sure that uh, Dr. Welsing's energy, uh, her teachings uh, continue. 
Uh, so just, you know, do what you need. If you want to just drop me an email to make sure you get that information, if you weren't able to write it down or what have you, or you don't have Facebook and all that stuff, feel free. You can drop me an email as well, and I will be more than happy uh, to pass the information along. Uh, if you want to get more details, support, whatever you can do uh, to contribute. And I think uh, they also, that might even be the email that you can use if you are trying to get the DVD because um, I know some people uh, definitely wanted to have that in their collection as well. You might be able to drop an email to CressWellsingLoveFund at gmail.com uh, to see if they have the information uh, for the DVD. Uh, I'm going to be in touch with Miss um, Cress Love uh, about that as well. I know it's you know been short notice, but as soon as that uh, all of that is finalized, I'll make sure to give that out on the program as well so that folks can get a copy uh, if you want to keep it in your collection, uh, if you did not get to see it, or if you just want to make sure that you have it uh, to share uh, with others uh, the service from this past uh, Saturday. Uh, with that, uh, we will take a quick break, and then if uh, any folks have comments on what they heard this evening, uh, it is still uh, a bit wild. Uh, that is, I still am struggling to find the correct word, but uh, Miss uh, Lauren Crestlove, she's at Dr. Welsing's residence uh, again, which is where she was last time when she spoke with us in Washington, D.C. So, uh, you know, when you save a number uh, in your phone, uh, the person's name that you have, the number saved number, that's what will pop up uh, on the phone. So that's what pops up uh, when I call her. It'll just say Dr. Francis Cress Welsing. And she sounds so much like Dr. Welsing. It's, uh, it's, it's just a, a very... Uh, it's just a very bizarre experience almost to uh, have her sounding so much like Dr. Welsing and then she's calling from that number and everything. It's it's uh, it is something. And I think some people commented on that before, how much she sounds like her. And they kind of have this uh, very uh, similar uh, energy and even some of their uh, many of their positions uh, are very similar as well. Uh, but we will take uh, just a quick break. And then if folks have any uh, commentary they want to add in before we wrap things up, anything that stood out. Uh, that they want to make sure uh, is mentioned or emphasized. We'll make time for that as well. But we'll be right back uh, after the commercial break. Context of white supremacy. RacismDaily.com, your number one source for global news reports on race, racism, and overt actions of white supremacy. From Asia to the Americas to Europe to Australia to Africa, racism is not a thing of the past. It is our current reality. Be informed. Be globally informed. You should be the first to know. RacismDaily.com. 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 Is racism hurting you? On issues of race, are you unable to speak, think, and act with clarity and confidence? Are you tired of laughing when nothing is funny? Smiling when you are not happy? Agreeing when you really disagree? At counterracism.com, you can learn specific strategies and techniques to counter the behaviors of the people who practice racism in all areas of activity. Using words correctly, following counter-racist logic, even counter-racist science projects designed to reveal what racism is, how it works, and how to counter it. The open-source code writing format allows you to pick and choose from a variety of counter-racist suggestions so you can produce the code that works for you. Stop by counterracism.com today and help replace racism with justice. 
That's counter-racism.com. Do you need a one-stop shop for all of your multimedia needs? Triumphant Multimedia is a skilled team of professionals with a passion for great marketing and chic design. Our specialties include consulting, brand development, copywriting, and creative graphic design that's second to none. We also offer photography, photo retouching, videography, and video editing. At Triumphant Multimedia, our goal is to provide highly effective creative solutions built to suit any individual need or budget. Give us a call at 678-732-8067 or check us out online at trimultimedia.com. everyone welcome this is justice with the cows radio program if you want to learn about understand and counter racism white supremacy be sure not to miss a cows episode we keep them jammed packed with constructive information to sharpen your use of words to help eliminate the system of racism white supremacy asap also to be able to invest in my counter racist efforts co-hosting the cows radio program please visit my blog, Just Do Justice Today, You're just saying just buckets and buckets of words. Context of white supremacy. Uh, we should be back later. In the, certainly we will be here on Friday. Leonita McLean, A Foot in Each World, uh, our fourth installment in the book study session also a chicago native miss mclean uh fascinating read i mentioned that book uh to lauren crest love when i spoke with her uh this past weekend because i was like oh man she grew up in chicago and she wrote about uh racism in chicago and the election with harold washington and uh miss crest love she had uh really vivid uh details of the uh, mayoral election with harold washington and the impact that it had on black people and the impact also that it had on white people uh, in the greater Chicago area at that time. But she said that she uh, she didn't know about uh, Leonita McLean. And I was telling her, like, yeah, she wrote this this essay, How Chicago Taught Me to Hate Whites. And uh, then she ended up committing suicide about a year later. And, and she was just stunned about all that. She said she wanted to really uh, make an effort to get the book to uh, to check it out. But, uh, yeah, that will be this Friday as we continue with the read. Uh, picking up uh, kind of midway. I think we're about the halfway uh, point of the book this Friday, but we should even be back before then. Uh, just make sure to stay tuned. The Facebook page, uh, you can check Black Talk, uh, Black Talk Radio Network uh, to make sure you don't miss uh, whenever we have uh, broadcast. This was kind of uh, scheduled short notice. I didn't say anything about it uh, when we were on Saturday or even when we were on this past Sunday morning. Uh, because I didn't uh, speak to uh, Miss Cresslove until kind of late in the day uh, on Sunday. And uh, she said she she had the time she'd be willing to come back and speak with us again. So this kind of happened uh, short notice, but uh, always uh, a privilege uh, to get her on the broadcast. Um, in fact, she even shared an additional anecdote where she was talking. This is more recent. She was talking with a white woman on the phone. And she said that uh, this was apparently a younger uh, white female. And she got an attitude and was pretty rude in the way that she was speaking to her. And uh, she said that, you know, this a uh, little racist, uh, she should have been able to tell that she was talking to someone who was significantly older than her. And that just totally uh, went out the window. And she just said that it, it 
uh, number one, reminded her of being able to handle those types of events. You can handle them better when you understand what racism is, how it works, what it means to be white. That way you're not as surprised, you're not as hurt at a white person practicing racism against you. You pretty much expect that. That's par for the course. Uh, and she also said that just the fact that she had mentioned it, because it's uh, it wasn't days ago. I think it had happened maybe a week or so ago, but she said that uh, the fact that she was bringing it up again, that it did have an impact on her. And I, she, we were both saying that 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 is important. That's something to keep in mind uh, in terms of the constant damage to our mental health that happens under the system of white supremacy uh, and why we should really make an effort uh, to be as patient as possible uh, with other black people. And just keeping in mind that uh, we have all been uh, intensely victimized, intensely traumatized under the system of racism, white supremacy. Uh, any of the folks who uh, participated, who had a hand up, any comments you wanted to make sure you uh, get in before we wrap things up? Can I be heard? Your volume is a little low, Thomas, in New York. If you could speak up, that would be good. Good evening, Mrs. Uh I believe so. Go ahead. Yes, um, 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 good evening again to the callers and yourself. Um, I just had a couple of comments I had to, I wanted to make. Um, um, one was, um, she mentioned gentrification. And, um, this weekend I was at a funeral in, um, Jersey City where I grew up at. My aunt passed away. And, um, you know, my cousin, you know, her son, um, he was, he's a much older black male in his, um, probably in his 70s. And um, he um, was telling me how bad um, where he lives in New Jersey, um, how bad it has gotten. I was even shootings there now. And, you know, I remember growing up and coming from Jersey City, which was pretty bad, you know, you know, taking that 45 minute drive out to, you know, his area. And it was, you know, like you were in another world. But um, like she was saying, a lot of blacks are being forced into the suburbs. And, um, you know, I see a lot of the criminal elements of following me due to racism, white supremacy, of course. Um, and my other calm thought was, you know, to me, Dr. Wellesley was both ahead of her time and she also came a little too late. You know, um, you know, I say she was ahead of her time because it seems like now is the time more people are waking up and looking for answers. And, um, of course, she had the answer, you know, it's racism, white supremacy. And um, too late because I think the generation before, you know, she came up with the the critical race theory and the ISIS papers, you know, they were more engaged. Um, and I think they would have handled the problem a lot differently than they did. You know, I, I would say, imagine if Martin Luther King or Malcolm and Elijah or the Panthers had the Wellsen theory, if they would have done things a little bit differently. And um, I think she kind of like came right between... I think, um, you know, both times, you know, of course she came at the time she's supposed to, but, you know, it seems like if just if um, those people were a little bit more refined with the information, you know, how they looked at the problem, I think things would be a lot differently today. And um, I'll mute my line. Thank you. Well, I would definitely say at least for the folks right now uh, are should it definitely take advantage uh, of the fact that she left uh, because of the time that she existed uh, technology has vastly improved 
Uh, she left uh, just an incredible amount of material uh, for folks to study from, not just the ISIS papers, but her lectures and uh, recordings and videos and all of that. Uh, people should really take uh, full advantage uh, of the priceless and immense archives uh, that she left to study from, even though she's not with us. And I, I would wholeheartedly agree. I, I think she was, uh, as they say, ahead of her time in so many different uh, respects. So many of the things that she uh, was talking about, um, Man, it's not just will it be of critical importance as long as the system of white supremacy exists, but I think uh, it will be years from now. People will be looking back like, wow, she was really uh, was just so thorough, had such a comprehensive and accurate understanding of racism, white supremacy, that she was seeing how things were going to evolve and develop uh, years uh, before they got here. I think that's going to be the case probably with both her uh, and Mr. Fuller. But uh, yeah. Uh, other folks that uh, dialed in with the hand up, you'll have anything you want to get in before we uh, wrap things up? Can I be heard? Yes, sir. Uh, yes, greetings to you, Gus, and to all the callers. And uh, yes, to Thomas, uh, my condolences again to you and your family. Um, I just found what she discussed regarding black mental health to be just incredible. Um, just because I've seen so many people, myself included, um, I had you know, bouts of depression. I was suicidal when I was really young. Um, I've seen my, my wife suffer quite a bit as well, just dealing with mistreatment by sadly other black people um, and as well as white people. But I guess her most acute experience with uh, being hurt has come from her own people, especially the family. And um, to hear what she was saying and, and, and how she discussed um, just mental health and, and our ability to really focus on loving ourselves. I actually, when she was discussing the book, I was at Amazon ordering it like that moment. So by the time she finished the second sentence about the book, I'd already ordered it. Um, and it's something I wanted, I'll definitely share with my wife and hopefully it'll, it'll help her as well as far as just developing, um, the ability to maybe heal from a lot of the trauma that she's carrying. Yep, I was serious about that. I got the book when she we talked about it last time. And I thought about something else when she discussed the death of Mr. Robert Lawrence. Is it Robert Lawrence? Is her brother-in-law? Yes. Yeah, I got it immediately. I just said, this is something I want to read, but I definitely want to share with my wife as well because I think it'll be really helpful. And I just wanted to speak about Mr. Lawrence. When she first mentioned the story of what happened to Mr. Lawrence, I immediately thought, this is on her, the last time she first appeared, that they killed him. That was my immediate thought when she said it. I said, the parachute didn't open. I said, something doesn't seem, it just didn't feel right. And just internally, something felt uncomfortable. And as she discussed the black box and how he was telling this, this German uh, student in German what he was doing incorrect and he didn't listen, um, Really, it made me think immediately of racial matters. It made me think of just how insidious racism and white supremacy is and how dangerous it is even to work with or amongst them. So it's like, it's like just being trapped with a caged, psychotic animal every time we're in the presence of these people. And I think just listening to what happened to Mr. Lawrence, sadly how he was disrespected even posthumously, um, just really should give us an understanding of how dangerous they are. When you, when you had, I think it was um, Dr. Darren T. Smith who talked about epigenetics and just how being in the presence of white people, he was one. There was a couple of other doctors you've had uh, who studied that as well. I think uh, Dr. Nayana Rasayan talked about it as well. Just being around white people can make us 
sick. It can kill us. It's deadly. And we should really make an effort to have as little contact with them as possible, unless it's absolutely necessary. Um, and thank you so much for having her on the show. You said it, her voice is so hauntingly like Dr. Welsing's. I have to do a double take. Her laugh is like a rainbow. It's like very infectious, but it's almost like a, just, just, it brightens everything. I, I laughed immediately every time she laughed because her laugh was so hearty and so, so deep and rich. And, um, I consider her feet all day, but thank you so much for having her on the show. I hope we we're able to, we're able to get her back on the show in the future and I'll mute my line. Yeah, me too. Me too. That's kind of astounding as well. Like I didn't uh I wish I had known that when Dr. Welsing was still uh with us to ask, you know, her thoughts on her brother-in-law, uh Robert Lawrence and uh everything that transpired with that. It would have been interesting to hear her uh thoughts on that as well, but just uh that would in my view just be another tragic illustration uh when we've talked about being an exemplary black person, you're competent intelligent, well-trained, uh, thorough in what you do, whatever your field of expertise is, that it really doesn't make a difference to racist man, racist woman, racist child. You're just another nigger. And uh, just from what she said, I mean, wow, for a white person, if this was deliberate sabotage uh, to kill Robert Lawrence, like why I would be willing to do something where I might kill myself in this process just to get at this nigger pilot here that's supposed to be training me and he i think she said that even the white person who was involved in this crash he was not even qualified he didn't even have the credentials he shouldn't have been this program uh in the first place he shouldn't have been flying this uh aircraft in the first place uh that led to mr lawrence's death uh i really wish that that's something that i had known about uh when you know dr welsing was still with us but fascinated continuing to learn even even after her uh transition that is amazing glad we got additional details about that from her this time around as well um, oh yeah gus i have one more thing is it okay mm-hmm. um uh, the other thing I, th- I just thought about it while you were talking was when she discussed uh the white rats and the experiments mm. they do on white rats that was so brilliant because there's a great book by dr richard king called uh, melanin a key to freedom where he discusses uh, melanin in black people specifically and um, how all of our internal organs are literally bathed in in melanin and the power of melanin. And when she discussed the fact that white people basically lacking melanin, just like the white rat being an albino rat, there there are biological differences that basically say that white people are catering towards their own subspecies of human, which is them, they're, they're albino mutants. Um, so they basically, all of their experiments were catered towards how it would, the reactions would take place in white people, not non-white people. And it makes a lot of sense because even in the rat population, normal rats, which are rats that have color, are also bathed in melanin, no different than black people and all other black living things. So um, it, it really spoke volumes to how just the foundation of the medical industry is white supremacy because they're focusing solely on the white organism, which is, like you said, themselves and not the, the majority population. And um, that, she was brilliant just, just for bringing that up. And I'll mute my line there, but I just wanted to comment on that because I thought it was just incredible when she said it. Thank you. I know that's come up on the program uh, before. I'm not, uh, it would probably have to give me a little while to ponder on it uh, if it was Dr. Welsing who brought it up, but I know some of our guests uh, have brought that out before with the exact same line of thinking uh, that they're using the uh, 
rats that lack pigmentation, uh, that lack melanin to study on, and that that also is an expression of racism, white supremacy, and, and even uh, in line with their affinity for any and all albino critters uh, on the planet. But, uh, yeah, 909, did you have anything you wanted to add before we uh, wrap things up? Uh, yeah, I was just thinking um, her sense of humor, um, it makes me, it made me, it kind of made me, I laughed a lot, made me want to joke with her a lot. And I think uh, I would kind of want to uh, keep that in mind and suppress that a little bit when she comes on because she does, her her insights, like, you know what I'm saying, were, were on point. You know, she 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 surprised me and, and um, you know, some unexpected answers and, and that's, you know, that's, that's, that stimulates the mind and whatnot. So I just, you know, wouldn't want to joke with her too much and want to want to laugh with her. But she definitely has that energy. But I will. But she 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 knows what she's talking about. Like, so I would make sure I remember that. Like next time she came on to the show. Um, I think she's here for us. Like we, the creator, made it happen. You know what I'm saying? Like, okay, this this gave 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 Miss Love. For, to us, you know what I'm saying. That 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 doctor wasn't as gone, and um, I like what she said about the drugs. Um, I think they pur- you know, I mean, I've seen a lot of literature on that that they purposely put, dr- you know, they use drugs to uh, suppress suppress us. You know what I'm saying? Fighting against the system, you know, the system of racism, white supremacy. Um. Her answer she gave on the uh, psychology, you know, I see that a lot, you know, with people, you know, starting businesses and things like that, that they, they get discouraged real easy, like it affects them. I mean, as she was telling that story, I kind of felt uh, her pain, you know what I'm saying? Like that effect, that affected her for a long time, you know what I'm saying? I mean, that is, it's, 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 uh, what do you call it? It's, uh, it's, is something physical, you know what I mean? Every time you think about it, you physically feel, or every time you get dis, you know, you get disrespected or whatever, you physically feel like like crap, and then it's affecting you years down the line. Like every time you think about it, or in, in a similar situation, you just get that energy, you just get that dump of negative energy, and it just stops your energy, your confidence, everything. Like I mean, we have to deal with that. Um, you know, we have to deal with, this is what people are dealing with. So, so like a, like a, like a, um, you know, like a psychological attack on, on that level. And that's just one experience. <laughs> I mean, it's a, it, it, it should be nothing. You go to get, try to get a job. They say no, whatever you go get, you know, you try 10 more times till you, till you get a job. That should just be like, like you said, par for the course, but Man, these, these these small things like going to the going to the grocery store, going anywhere, we get this psychological attack, and uh, it, it 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 affects us like hardcore if we if we're not um you know if we if we're not aware of it if we don't have the ability to um um transmute that negative energy, man, that's that's deep, man. That's that's very powerful thing to consider um 
So I just wanted to say that. And I mean, her answer was something that I would give, like like all of those, like these books, like you said, uh, like like she said, uh, how to uh, win friends and, and influence people. Like all the children that's in high school should be reading that book. Black black and non white children, they should they should be, you know, that should be mandatory. Like if you're a parent, like they should know read that book and so many others man so they can under so they can understand what they're going to be facing and um to build you know build their confidence and self-esteem so uh the the, the parachute piece you know me and gus uh we we we, <laughs> we be watching it we had to, what is it i don't know if it's a series but uh, white people doing dangerous things you know how they be all these uh, extreme sports and stuff like that, you know, we uh, just checking out, you know, just kind of like case studying some of the, some of these sports that these white people be doing. But um, on the one hand, though, I've been reading that it gives them a um, it gives them a lack of fear. Like when you jump out of an airplane or something like that, you know what I mean? Or you climb a mountain, like just coming, just dealing with regular life. You, you don't have that fear because you've done something. You kind of risk your you risk you risk your life, you know, doing something. But um, you know, I was just talking. Me and Gus were talking about like I, you know, black people have to worry about the parachute being sabotaged. Like you can get a great benefit from doing something like that, but us going to uh, uh, you know a white uh, facility and, and trying to do something like that, man. Like white people will sabotage. You know. That's a real concern, and, and <laughs> it's it's kind of stopping people from getting that experience of, you know, doing something, you know, doing something out of the norm and and getting the benefits from it. I mean, this whole system is 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 a uh, is is just is just pathetic. It's it's just, it has to be it has to be done away with immediately, and. Like we can't do nothing, you know. We used to have rights of passage, but slavery uh, ended all of that. You know, we we go out and do something dangerous and get the benefit from it, become a man, become a woman. <laughs> so, like, there's no time, you know. Jordans and things like that make you feel good and things like that. Like all the things that we're doing, um, nothing's gonna, nothing's gonna change. Nothing's gonna really be the way it should be where we're really brothers and sisters until this system ends and we got we got to focus on that like heavily i i just wanted to uh, say that and thanks again for the program absolutely since she uh she mentioned reading is more important than watching television one thing i, I wished i had asked her i had to put this on my list for next time uh i've been going back and listening to some of the archives of dr welsing and uh, she mentioned the book Sycamore Row, uh, which was written by John Grisham. And uh, I just told a listener about that because I was like, John Grisham has written a lot of books about racism, not just The Time to Kill, um, which they made into a movie. But uh, he wrote uh, The Racketeer, uh, where the main character is a black male, which is focused on racism. And then Dr. Welsing, she talked about Sycamore Row, and we talked about this on the program. Uh, but this uh, book that he wrote, it's more recent, and I think it centers around a white man dies. He hangs himself, no less. And the big part of the plot is that this white man left a will where he was leaving his estate to a black female. And so the town is like, why did he leave all this money? He was pretty wealthy. Why did he leave all this money? 
uh, to this Negress. And what was going on? Yeah, I guess you could insert cowbell there, too. But that's the main plot. And she was saying at the time, uh, Dr. Welsing, that, you know, she, I guess she didn't expect uh, this John Grisham book to, to have so much about racism in it. And she said that uh, she recommended it to her sister. And her sister uh, just loved it, devoured it. But she didn't. I don't remember her saying uh, the name. She has more than one. I don't remember her saying if it was uh, Miss Questlove or... Uh, her other sister, Barbara uh, Crest Lawrence, but uh, I will ask her next time if she if she was the one uh, that read Sycamore Row. Uh, but just to your, your point about how it impacts us, um, a listener just shared on uh, my Facebook page. I haven't even had a chance to read it because they shared it since we went live. Uh, but the article uh, is from The Telegraph. Uh, it is cab driver, cab driver falsely accused of rape saved by his phone app. Uh, and just the snippet, uh, it reads, uh, Berwick, which is the name of the uh, racist white woman, Berwick had invented the story for some unaccountable reason, in quote. He added, Mr. Asif, who is the victim, non-white male, a father of two from Carlington, Nottingham, said the experience had torn his life apart, leaving him unable to face work again for a month, having problems sleeping, sleeping and causing him to lose a stone in weight. He said, she changed my life. I'm completely different. I'm scared to go out. And you can go to the site and read the rest of the information. But I think just in line with what she said, and as I said, Dr. Welsing, I think I'm pretty sure she discussed this on the program about how she thinks this is widespread, particularly uh, we're dealing with workplace racism where black people have these sort of experiences and they just become frustrated uh, and just give up and, and just say, I'm not going to do this anymore. I don't have the confidence to keep facing these rejections and hurdles and what have you and being rejected. I just don't have it to continue. So, you know, I'm just going to whatever, whatever that means. Um, I think it's extremely important that it's it's not this one acute event like with the cab driver or uh, Miss Cresslove uh, being denied a job. They said they don't hire coloreds. It, it's not that one event, even 909. I think you were mentioned some of these people, they go to, to apply for a job or a loan or whatever it is. Uh, that it, I mean, it's a whole lifetime. It's every day uh, where that stuff just adds up. Uh, and I mean, I say this all the time. Everyone has a breaking point everyone it happens to white people in their system of white terrorism where it happens to white people uh where they you know just can't i can't take it anymore they got all these reports coming out now about the increased rate of suicide amongst white people and they're on heroin and all of this stuff and they have everything set up in their favor so just imagine if you're a black person where this has been your experience for the entirety of your life uh not to mention if we want to involve epigenetics uh, and not just you what you see happening to every other black person around you. It's not like you're seeing tons of examples uh, of brilliant black people being appreciated and respected and moving right up the ladder in their respective field. It's not like you're seeing that. So you can think, hey, uh, my brother did it. My cousin did it. My sister did it. My mom did it. My dad did it. You know, I just need to brush myself up, tighten up, boom, boom, go back and everything. That's not the case. I don't think for most black people anywhere on the planet, you're just seeing tons of examples of other black people who are meeting the same obstacles uh, where they're just being rejected at every turn and having lots and lots of, of difficulties uh, to try to do constructive things, particularly if it's something of value uh, where it just it adds up. It becomes such a racism. White supremacy is so cumulative uh, in nature because it impacts all areas of people activity. It's worldwide and it's been going on for centuries now. So I think that's really important and something that I would just further encourage should be 
mightily considered uh, anytime that we're dealing with other black people, even black people who might get on our nerves, we don't agree with how they're responding to racism, white supremacy, to just keep in mind that they've had those same cumulative traumas uh, under the system of white terrorism. And I, I just echo that because it was uh, a listener, and this has been wise, but we've talked about this a lot, but a listener was saying that they were hearing another non-white person victim of racism, and they were disagreeing with some of Dr. Welsing's uh, views, theories uh, over the past couple of days, and uh, they wanted to uh, disagree with this person and you know have an exchange uh, with their disagreement. And I asked uh, Miss Cress Love about this over the weekend. She said the exact same thing that Mr. Fuller said, which was the exact same thing Dr. Welsing said, because this came up during. It's not like people weren't doing this when she was alive. And she said, "I would not, Dr. Welsing and her sister both. I would not invest." two seconds uh, in squabbling with anybody, maybe a white person, but uh, not another black person. Uh, if they don't agree with Dr. Welsing's views, uh, Ms. Kresselove, she said specifically, uh, if you agree, if what Dr. Welsing, uh, what she taught, what she wrote, her theories, if they help you understand racism any better, uh, if you think they have some value, study them so that you know them better, so that you can articulate them well. Uh, to others and apply them in your life. That's all you need to do. Anybody that disagrees, fine. Where's their work at? Which was the same thing Mr. Fuller said. Fine. If Dr. Welsing didn't know what she was talking about and she's uh, erred in her assessment, what should we do to solve this problem? Step forward, give us your report. We'll see if it's logical, if it can help us solve this problem and keep it pushing. That's it. And that's exactly what Dr. Welsing would recommend. I said there are lectures that she's done where she's mentioned uh, famous, well-known scholars who have black people that have talked bad about her and her theory is nonsense. The ISIS papers is garbage and rah, rah, rah. she did not invest one second in defending or refuting what she uh, what they said. She only brought it up to say. That is another tactic in a system of white supremacy where you have a tiny minority population. One of their must do's is to keep us in conflict with each other. Avoid that at all costs. There's no need for us to squabble and fight amongst other black people about different views on racism. You can have a, an exchange if you have questions or what have you. Certainly you don't have to agree with everybody, but there don't need to be any knockdown, drag out arguments. I'm going to defend this person. Or I'm going to defend myself uh, to the death uh, about this. It's not needed. Present your view. If they don't agree, no problem. We're all going to work to solve this problem. And a lot, we all have a lot of work to do because this problem is still here. And I can stop there anything else folks want to make sure they uh get in um yes i have one quick thing here um um actually i, I was listening to 909 and i think the parachute is a great analogy as to just how big this problem that we have is and it shows the dedication that whites have you know because just to think for people to conceptualize um, how let's jump out the airplane and how are we going to do this, you know, and to create the parachute, you know, and, and I'm sure they had to go through trial and ever and all kinds of tests at what level, how, how can we fly the plane and it's, you know, um, if it's too high, you know, will you know, the, the, when the, all the, everything gets sucked out the plane, that, that effect takes place. And, um, I would bet the better. The first testers of the parachutes were black people as well. I mean, I, I, I doubt they would have let a black, a white guy um, go up and test the first parachute. Um, I would love to know if somebody was there for that test. Um, and um, I just wanted to know, um, Gus, if it would be the callers. Um, I'm sure everyone's aware of the, um, the so-called terrorist attacks today that happened in Belgium. 
And um, throughout the city here in New York, there was a stream higher police presence everywhere. Um, but uh, my question was, um, um, did you see um, what Trump's speech was after the, the terrorist attacks, if anyone had saw that? And um, if, they, if they did, did they realize how he uh, associated the whole terrorist attack to the black gangs in the, in the city? And, um, you know, how to deal with them, what we deal with them the same way we deal with the black gangs in the inner city. And it was just very strange because, you know, I always think that they're going to one day turn us into urban, turn us into urban terrorists and use these laws against us. But I, I just wanted to know if anyone had noticed that. And I'll meet my line. Yeah, I didn't see Trump's uh, speech today. I, <clears throat> that'll have to be something that I check out and. I'm sure we can invest some time in that. Uh, we can broadcast compensatory call-in or some of the programs before that, but I didn't get a chance to see his speech uh, from today. Yeah, I didn't either. No, I, 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 it wasn't a speech. It was an interview he did on uh, Mr. Wolf Blitz. Oh, okay. I would say on the whole parachute thing and on what you just said right there, racism is war. Racism is war, 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 war. These people are, are, are on a war war footing. The parachute came out of war. You can't get it over the wall or you build a wall too high, how are we gonna get over it? Like we're gonna have to we're gonna have to jump from a from a height, a distance to get into that territory. That's war thinking. Racism is war. What Donald Trump says, he's got writers, that's propaganda. You can kill two birds in one stone, man. We can attack the terrorists, and we can throw some blacks in there, and then associate them with AIDS, terrorists, and black. I mean, man, that's a that's a man. They, they that's a what is that? That's a triple. That's a that's a triple double or something like that. Like that's a high score right there. We 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 didn't, we didn't hit all angles. Uh, you know what I'm saying? Like it's it's everything they do is is war. So this proper that propaganda that that type of language is gonna get worse and worse and worse and it's gonna be like you're gonna be like and, and it's gonna be that psychological attack. You gonna be like I can't believe he said that. Like dang, I gotta go to work tomorrow and this is on the news. Everybody has seen this man. I mean they talking about black people and boo. So man, this is war, man. We gotta get on the war foot and understand like <laughs> it's gonna get worse. They gonna use these words. They gonna they gonna. They man, they on the they serious they serious man. These white people are not playing. I was gonna say I agree with that. I think after eight years of Obama, they trying to tighten up real tight, really tighten up the ship and make sure everything is white supremacy, tip top shape. We and I think um I think what Gus mentioned it. I think on this past weekend's compensatory calling or on the Global Sunday, but essentially they're they're making it so that it's going to be overt attacks on black people in the street. The stuff that's happening, I, I literally wrote to Gus. I don't know if he got my email, but I wrote to Gus saying those assaults we're watching at Trump rallies are lynchings. When you see all of those black people surrounded by hostile white people who are physically assaulting them and berating them with, with racial epithets, essentially that is a lynching. And it's, it's, it's like a, a motion picture version of um, a lynching photo. And these things are informing white people's activity. I think we're going to see a lot more George Zimmerman's where it's just white citizens going out, killing black people and some of them getting off or most of them or all of them getting off. 
um, we're going to see a it's going to ratchet up on a level that we haven't seen before. And Donald Trump is the harbinger of doom. Um, but I believe again that having him as the president, I think will wake a lot of black people up. That's really what I think it is. And if that's what it takes, then so be it. I look forward to it. And hey, everything that I've been saying to to people who are, who are in my inner circle that I speak to about racism, white supremacy on that level. They, they they see in it. They see they see what's to come, and I'm like, look at look at what's happening on the news. Look at every single rally. There's in this. There's an incident. Every single one of them. There's photographs and there's motion picture images of these people basically being lynched. They're non-fatal lynchings that we're watching, and I don't even think that it's sinking in for us. This is exactly the type of stuff that Dr. Wilson said they would do to the Jews in Germany. You know, they would show them in the most horrible, disparaging terms possible. This is our everyday reality, and this is conditioning the every average, every single average white person, man, woman, and child. We've seen the children acting up and just utter disrespect to black adults in school, calling them nigger. This is the beginning of, it's going to be a, a wild uh, 2016. Just look forward to a lot of racism, white supremacy, and violence is going to be on a whole nother level. Um, and I'll mute my line there. Just on the Trump rallies, I have I was looking at the article where uh, Donald Trump spoke to uh, Wolf Blitzer today. I'll be able to watch the video once uh, we conclude. But uh, just with those Trump rallies, uh, my opinion prior to the most recent incident that I saw was that I think a lot of the incidents at these rallies, I suspect that these incidents uh, could be staged these black people being mauled and, and beaten at the rallies and the most recent incident where it was actually a black Trump supporter and yes that's what that's what it was a black Trump supporter physically assaulted a white Trump protester and they have video of this they showed it I think this happened within the last 48 hours or so uh, but for me that just solidified I think these events uh, are staged um, I think that has just the most re recent one uh, and they asked Donald Trump about this and you know went over what happened blah 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 uh, I think that is significant. Uh, one, I think we talked about this before. Anytime where they have consistently images of black people being victimized and it's a white perpetrator, uh, they like to slip in an example to say, like, oh, it's, it's not racism. It's not racism. That's not what you think, just to confuse uh, some of the non-white people. So now it's switched. Uh, it's a black person going and punching and physically assaulting uh, a white person who's demonstrating against Donald Trump. So he's like, oh, no, no, it's not racism. See, it's the other way around. There are black people that support Donald Trump. Well, well go. Hang on go. a second. Hang on a second. I asked you all not mm -hmm. to interrupt me. Um, where it's a white person uh, who supported oh. Trump. Um, I think these events are staged. However, it's this, if anything, I would relate it to, if we want to go Dr. Welsing and what she talked about with Nazi Germany, Joseph Goebbels, it's to produce the same impact. The vast majority of these events, it's been black people being pummeled, beaten, kicked, and even... Even once they're the ones that have been violated, the police come and hop on them. So they're doubly violated and, you know, take them out or what have you if they do anything to the white person who the white terrorist, if they do anything to them or not. Uh, I think it's the same impact when white people continually see these images of white people being, excuse me, of black people being beaten, mauled, violently assaulted. That right there uh, leads to what. Ross was talking about where you have more incidents of white violence and they've even done studies on this uh, where they say well white people 
we had one of the guests on the program some years back where he said they've done studies when they show white people video games of black people being aggressive or white people get to go out and be violent. They get to shoot a gun and kill up a lot of people. That encourages them to want to go out and do this for real. They've done the studies on this so they know how that impacts racist man, racist woman, racist child. I just, I still, I submit that these, I suspect, are staged, but it's to produce the same result and that I suspect you are going to see a great increase in the amount of blatant, direct white violence, white terrorism against black people. And I think I mentioned this on the program this weekend, that we should all be on heightened alert when we're out just being aware of your surroundings. Uh, if there are white people uh, near you, if you're particularly, if you're in any sort of environment where they're intoxicated whites, really be mindful, because I definitely think it's going to be a huge rise in these sort of incidents. I think we've already seen some evidence uh, that sort of thing, just with some of the things, the news clips that we've been playing over the last few weeks, where a white person pulls out uh, a machete at a, a car collision or what have you, and is threatening the black people with a black child in the vehicle and those sort of attacks. I think it's absolutely it's going to be an increase, and I think this is all a part of racist deliberate design. I will pause there. Um, I apologize for um, chiming in. I was just um, going to ask you because you was mentioning the um, the incident with the um, the gentleman who got beat up by the black man at the Trump event. And I was going to say that that was an edited tape. When you see the full tape, um, before that happens, there's a white woman with a Ku Klux Klan mask on verbally assaulting that black man. And that white man jumps in between him and the white woman that has on the Ku Klux Klan mask. And that's when the black man punched the white man. It had nothing to do with the actual rally or the guy was a protest or anything. It was a white woman who had on a Ku Klux Klan mask who turned around and started calling that black man all kinds of names like niggas, et cetera. And um, I only saw that whole thing played on, um, I think, um, one news network where they went and showed the whole tape, just didn't cut it from the black man punching, showed what happened before he started punching the man. Good to know. Good to know. I know the uh, Young Turks, they had that. I'd seen, I'd seen it on another side as well, but the Young Turks, they didn't play the whole thing. Uh, they were talking about it and saying, oh, it's more violence. They were pre- taking pretty much the same stance that they have uh, generally in support of Bernie Sanders. And Trump is encouraging this sort of thing. And they don't have an adequate response. And why does this keep happening uh, at the rallies? And they did you know, take some time to point out it was a black person. But, yeah, they did not include the, uh, I guess, the other relevant information that uh, happened uh, during this event, I would still submit, though, that to me even sounds, uh, yeah, I would stick to what I said originally. I, I will definitely check out the uh, entirety of the video uh, from News One, but I would stick to what I said. I think these uh, likely are staged uh, to continue to have this sort of thing happen. You've got cameras, security, that sort of thing. These are anything that happens where it's on television like that. I tend to uh, at least wonder if this could be something that they have staged for a desired impact uh, in the system of white supremacy. I agree with that, too. I agree emphatically. But I was going to ask you, too, have you heard that Donald Trump actually has Secret Service agents that protect him as well as, like, private security? Because I was like, when when has a uh, presidential candidate walked around with Secret Service? But I actually saw that in an article I read that he actually is protected by Secret Service. And I find that very fascinating. I thought I had heard that, but I thought that was uh, standard. Um, and I'm, I'm only basing this off of 2012 uh, when they were 
uh, covering the primaries uh, and everything leading up to the election. Uh, I recall, uh, I think it was Mitt Romney and some other some of the other people that were running in 2012 against President Obama, that they also uh, had Secret Service uh, protection at that time. So I would just my basis. Those are the only two elections where I can say, OK, it was somebody who was running for president who was not president, who had uh, some sort of Secret Service protection, or at least it was reported that they had Secret Service protection. It seems like this might be. Uh, a protocol that they have in place, uh, depending on if the candidate is really popular or it looks like, you know, they might potentially uh, win the nomination or what have you. So I didn't I didn't think that was a deviation from the norm, but it might be. OK, because I just I just don't remember seeing that. So it's good for you. It's good that you told me that, because I don't remember ever seeing candidates, you know, even back in the day, I don't remember candidates actually having Secret Service. So um, that's just interesting. And it might be a new protocol or it could be something that was always there and I just didn't know because mm-hmm. Secret Service, sometimes they can be secret. You know, they right. do call them Secret Service. So you might not actually be able to pick them up on camera or whatever, but they're right there. You know, and they're pre- pretty much um, in plain sight, but completely invisible. I put right. it that way. Right. Yeah. Like, I would be kind of surprised if Hillary Clinton didn't have, you know, Secret Service protection. She's been First Lady. She's been in uh, in the Senate, uh, was sec- former Secretary of State. I would be kind of surprised if she didn't have, you know, Secret Service protection uh, as well. Yeah, her I would expect, just because of her background, like you said, just being the First Lady alone, I think would guarantee her that for the rest of her life. But then she has all those other roles she's played as well. Mm-hmm. But, I mean, the other ones who might be senators and things like that, I'm just, and even him, Donald Trump, I mean, he does friggin' TV shows, you're fired. Like, that's his right. most famous line, you know, but they have, like, Secret Service. And I saw, and I remember they took a picture of him on camera because they said that um, he, had, he had protesters, quote-unquote, in the audience that were basically um, uh, trying to throw something at him, and they were yelling, I guess, cursing at him and just yelling whatever protest slang they were yelling. And they showed, like, two men in black outfits with, with shades on, two white guys bald head with, with shades on, back to one in front of him, one behind, and then he had, two, like, about four other private security, and they had him completely flanked. And I was like, wow. And that's when I, they said, um, you know, protected by Secret Service. I said, really? And I was like, wow, this is very interesting. And that's why I said, let me ask you about that. But I, I'm glad you clarified that for me. I appreciate it. Other folks. Um, he got his Secret Service um, protection the same day Ben Carson did. Oh, um, wow. They both requested, <laughs> they both, yeah, they both requested for it because they started receiving hate mail. Mm. And um, they, that's why it was, you have to request for it. I think Kasich got it recently um, as his popularity grew, but it is a standard practice. Um, Barack, Barack had it from day one because they thought it was a threat to his life in 2008. And um, really, the Secret Service, man, they could protect you from everything but a shoe. I mean, I remember them hitting Bush with a shoe twice in Iraq. Hmm. That's it. I'm on the news one side, just the incident that uh, I was talking about with this black uh, person was arrested for beating up uh, this white person at a Donald Trump rally and the news one site they do have uh, the white person uh, listed as being a Donald Trump protester uh, and he says that uh, he was there uh, he was protesting Donald Trump uh, because he's racist and fascist and blah 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 uh, they have the interview that was done with him outside uh, where he's sticking to that you know he was that's why he was there that's that's what they're reporting this is from the news one site like I'll be able to watch uh, the full video but uh, yeah they, they do have him listed as a Donald Trump protester and they do have the uh, black male uh, that was there they do have him listed as being a Donald Trump uh, supporter yep, this is at the news one site
Tony Petway. Yeah, when, you, when you see the whole when you see the whole video, you'll see it's a white woman. Um, she's about two rows down. She comes up on the steps. She has on the Ku Klux Klan, or she has a sheet over her head. It looks like she has a Klan sheet on, and she's taunting the black male. Um, and when he starts reacting to her taunting, that white man turns around, like sort of like to protect the white female, it looked like, or maybe to try to dissolve the situation. And that's when the man just started punching him. But that white female, is, and when she took off her clan mask, she was very young. So I said I was going to um, um, say something about it on the Saturday show, because um, they always talk about the young people. But she was um, definitely, I would say, in her late teens, maybe early 20s. Hmm. Yeah, they do mention you know what that. Go ahead. Go oh, ahead. I'm sorry. I was going to say, it looks like that what they're doing is skewered reporting because um, it seems like they're using this as an opportunity to bolster a lie, which is essentially that this guy was a Trump, the black guy was a Trump supporter who assaulted this white protester rather than the facts, which was racism, white supremacy. He was being having racial epithets hurled at him from two rows down, two rows away from him. And I think what he did was he probably took out his frustration on the white male because the white male was there. And, of course, he's protecting them from the person, protecting the person who he wants to assault. So he's probably like, okay, well, you're going to get it right now. And it's not really correct because he's lucky he didn't, you know, end up getting hurt or, or even shot at the event um, for assaulting a white guy. But, but the truth is, um, you know, they're using this to, as a propaganda stunt to first demonize the black male, make him look like a black person who's supports Trump because we really don't know that's what they're reporting but we don't know how true that really is and then on top of that there's no mention of the fact that this this white female was basically harassing him and being a white terrorist and that's what set him on the rampage in the first place so to me it just seems very propaganda-esque and that they're really using him as um some sort of Trump scapegoat you know, to make him look a certain way. And I would love to actually, for them to actually interview him so they can ask him first, is he a Trump supporter? And then after that, what really happened? And that way he can help tell his side of the story because they're really demonizing him if that's the case. Even if you have a black station like News One, that means that they're, they're basically falling for the okie doke that they're putting out there as far as whatever the white people are reporting. They're just piggybacking off of what the white media is saying. And I remember back in the 80s, black news was almost completely different from white news. In New York City with Imhotep Gary Bird on WLIB, like they were, the news you got from them was completely different from the news you were getting anywhere else as far as any white sources whatsoever. So to me, they just seem to be falling on whatever the bandwagon is that the white people are trumpeting. And um, as far as that's concerned, they're skewering this black man's story and obviously demonizing him in the press. Yeah, yeah I just sent you. I, I just sent you guys an email um, with the, the that you know showed it from the perspective of the people with the KKK stuff on it the show, and um just to piggyback off Rob before I I mute I know you want to pull up us that I definitely see a movement to demonize him media wise because um they do not want him to get that nomination, and um I, I think it has a lot to do with some of the policy changes that he's negotiating, but who knows. But um, it's definitely a movement within the Republican movement to stop them from getting that nomination. I wouldn't be surprised if this is being staged, like I said. Mm. I just I, my last comment would be I 
I even am suspicious of that. Like I've seen a lot of that where they said, you know, Republicans are trying to devise all these schemes to keep Trump from getting the nomination and people coming out and saying they're embarrassed about the campaign and what a disgrace all of this is. Uh, I, I just I, I do not believe that at all. <laughs> like uh, I think white people, they can do a really good job. Uh, I think people had talked about before how they how white people can come out and say, oh, yeah, I'm going to vote for President Obama or I'm going to vote for the black person and that sort of thing. Uh, and then once they go in the ballot box, who knows, they go and they do the exact opposite, I suspect. And even Donald Trump had said that, that some of these people that have been coming out and speaking against him and saying, oh, yeah, Donald Trump is crazy. I would never uh, vote for him uh, to be president, that he said that he's talked to some of these people privately and they have no problem with him. Like right on, we're with you. I strongly suspect that that could be the case. I think it's very good, at least to give the appearance that there are whites who are not racist. We're not with this guy. He doesn't represent us. This is not democracy. I think it's it very much behooves uh, racism, white supremacy, to at least give the appearance that there are some of these quote unquote good whites. Uh, but when it comes down to it, they are all in alliance, racism, white supremacy, and that even some of the, uh, his candidates, uh, Ted Cruz and some of the others, when they've been asked on stage, they've said, Hey, we'll support whoever the eventual nominee is. Now they can, they can, uh, they offer their little caveats and saying maybe they would have some misgivings if the violence continued or what have you, but that's not coming out and saying, I'm not going to support Donald Trump if he wins the nomination. I haven't heard Ted Cruz, uh, Ben Carson, uh, Marco Rubio, any of these guys. I haven't heard anyone uh, take that stance publicly. And that's why I say even even that, the stuff that they're talking about, trying to figure out ways to make sure that he doesn't get the nomination. I do not believe them at all. I can rest there Uh, with that. Everybody satisfied? grand uh yes just, sir that was great right on just check the uh black talk radio network page uh or you can check the facebook page if you uh want to make sure you do not miss any of the programs because we should be back before friday uh for the book club the anita mclean uh if you have any questions problems gripes uh gus talking crazy said something that didn't make sense feel free uh drop an email until justice at gmail.com and again if you need the uh, information. If you want to support the efforts, uh, either for the Crest Welsing Institute, uh, the educational resources that they uh, are producing for black children, black people at large, but particularly black children, uh, just drop me an email and I can uh, send you the information. Uh, it'll have the email address, physical address, all of that for anyone. If you want to uh, support those efforts, just drop me a line until justice at gmail.com. Uh, thanks everyone for tuning in. I hope it was a constructive investment of your Tuesday evening uh with that again sobriety would be best under conditions of white terrorism uh you never know when it's going to be daniel holtzclaw darren wilson that pulls you over uh your life could change in seconds uh we want to make sure that we are lucid clear thinking uh so we can make the best possible decisions to keep ourselves safe uh and any non-white people that we are responsible for Buckle up anytime you're in the vehicle. Let's do everything we can to minimize contact with enforcement officers, race soldiers. With that, uh, creator, we ask that you help us remain patient with other black people, victims of racism. We ask that you help us remain patient with ourselves. Remind us to demonstrate the highest levels of black self-respect at all times, in all places, 
each and every time we are in contact with another black person. It has been time. Replace white supremacy with justice immediately. Cal signing out. Thoughts and prayers to uh, Thomas in New York's family. Loss of his aunt this weekend. Thanks all for tuning in. Nigga, you so brainwashed. I'm a victim, What's your brother. Problem? You're a victim. Right. I'm a up. victim of 400 years of conditioning. Shut up. The man has programmed my conditioning. Mm-hmm. Even my conditioning has been conditioned. <laughs> lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.